Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a masked motorsports company. Enjoy. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. We're down to the final three episodes of this season, of this uh, spring session. Then I'm going to take it off for the summer. I think we've got a couple little cool ideas cooking and kicking back and forth with a couple of guys about some stuff that might happen over the summer. But by and large, the big episodes, these big uh, interviews with guys like we have on today, Nick Nelson, they will return this fall thinking august all right you dialed in you turned on your streaming you want to hear about nick nelson nick got you on the horn what's up nick how are you i'm good man how are you doing brother well first thank you so much for agreeing to be on uh the talent tank you're a name that is always this uh perennial contender name in the conversation on the box for the podium if you're showing up to races. And I think we're going to talk about that here a little bit, like making races and not making races. But a lot of people have came to me and said like, dude, who is this guy that is constantly making ultra force viral? Right. All right. You're like the king of big air. You're, you're one of the guys. I mean, don't get me wrong. Dave Cole put ultra four on the map, you know, guys like Shannon Campbell put ultra four on the map. But when you look at the social media game today and what videos are going viral, as far as ultra fours, they tend to be Nick Nelson. I mean, Lauren has his stuff, you know, there's some sloths and stuff. There's, you know, I'm not, I don't want to downplay anybody. Miller has some good stuff. You know, Will Will Gentile puts out some amazing stuff for everybody, but yours is usually like cell phone videos of potato salad hill and Moab and you doing a step down at what? 60. Yeah, actually, well, Will actually was there with us for that one. So that was cool. And we've worked with Will really since probably 2010, you know, when we were first at hammers, I think we did our first little mini shoot with Will. So we've all kind of been around the, you know, this whole game since it, since it, and it was in its infancy, I guess you'd say. And then Pismo, I saw an amazing video. Was that just this past spring or so past fall? It, it was, it feels like in the last 12 months, maybe COVID is making drawn that out so much, but Pismo, you went, you like, went, was it Huckfest? Was that what was going on? That's the, uh, so, you know, I got some buddies in the Terra crew group and that, you know, Wilkie and, and Darren Parsons and all those guys that get out there and, and usually are putting out this content and stuff. And I've met those guys at events and we've been out, you know, kind of talking and I, we've always, every time we got together, it's like, Hey, we you know, we want to, we want to go out and do something and jump some stuff and have a good time. And so Darren reached out to me and was like, Hey man, we're going to do this Terra takeover in, in Pismo are you down to come? So, I was, and, and we were in between a race or something and the car was together. So I jumped all over it and went out there and just had some fun. Yeah. When you come off the top of the jump over this dune, you're in the air for so long and you're sailing for so long. Like people that I work with it, it, it saw it. Like they were looking at it like, that's fake. I'm like, no man, that's not fake. And they're like, no way, no way a car can be in the air that long. And I'm like, no, you're in the air that long. How many feet was that? I don't know. They didn't really walk it out it's, it's a really weird hit. It's, it's super, it's really big. And so the speed is a huge factor there because there's, it's really flat. And then there's a perfect landing that's got, you know, you got the down slope. So it takes the load off the car, but it's about a truck and a half long. So you have this sweet spot. That's a truck and a half. And after that you land in the flats. 
And you got all of the flat, right? I got the flat once. Yeah, I found <laughs> all of it. I think I'm a little bit shorter because of it still. Now, I even recently saw a video when I was you know, going back and playing back some stuff about you, you know, just to get mentally right about uh, about sitting down with you. And it was you and you and Lauren doing a, a gap jump. And, man, Lauren killed this gap jump. I mean, it looked good. And then you're come behind him and you're easily going maybe 30 miles an hour faster and uh, absolutely almost take out his back bumper. Like as you are jumping down behind him and I'm like, well, that's Nick. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We were trying to kind of put on a good show and it, it's a really weird track. So we were kind of, we kept trying to get together and it, and it's, uh, you know, I'm like, I, we got, we got a part in the corner. So I'm trying to play catch up. So just pour it on and see what it'll do. All right. So I got a question here. I've not been around you in the last couple of years in person and seen this beard. What's going on with this big old beard you got going? I don't know, man. It's always been around, you know, I kind of kept it short for a lot for years. And then, you know, over the last two years or so, probably kind of went a little longer. And then when COVID started, my girl was in there and she's like, hey, have you ever, you know, like, will you, how, how long can you, can you make it? <laughs> so, well, never tried. So uh, we just let it go for the last month and a half or two or whatever it is and ran it on out a little bit just for fun. And now you're getting into, uh, you've been in construction for you know a handful of years, starting up a kind of a new business in uh, the construction side of the world there in, in Las Vegas. Is that helping you get jobs? Yeah, I mean, it, does the beard <laughs> yeah. help the credibility? I don't know. That's probably 50-50. Some people, you know, you got the you got the, the people who are super clean shaven and, and uh, you know, dressed to the nines all the time. And then you have us rednecks showing up with beards and we carry guns and we're, you know, we're dirty. And so I'm sure. But there's people that trust you probably because you're you're real. And then you probably have some people who, you know, they, they would prefer the the GQ guy who shows up with his in, in his Mercedes, you know, dressed up. But we haven't had any problems. And you're one of those guys. You can pull off both those looks. That's uh, that's what's cool. <laughs> We got to do, you got to do it all sometimes, huh? So you, you said something, you know, and I brought it up to COVID and what's going on today and the limitations and things are now I'm, I'm sitting here in Houston, Texas and our uh, county judge, she's continued to extend the stay at home orders. But if you go out in the morning commute, this town is back open. Texas is back open. Everyone's back at work for the most part. Businesses are open. Rest. I think I know some of the bars are open. I don't know if the clubs are open. But everything's kind of back to it here in South Texas. What's Vegas like, and what's your world like? Man, like you know, I mean, my my fab shop is private. It's really, uh, it's it's at a house. It's at the house. It's behind the gates. You know, there's nobody that comes in there and out of there. It's all just word of mouth. People that I know, friends, you know, people in the race industry. We had Hartman down here tuning last week, doing shocks and. So that stuff really isn't affected. It's because no one even really knows you're there. Construction didn't stop either. So really, in my world, nothing stopped. We did, like you said, we had no traffic. I could go across town in 25 minutes, and now it's not the case. I mean, now you're sitting on the freeway again, parked on the way. If you try to leave at 6 o'clock, you're going to sit in the parking lot. Yeah, that's that's exactly how it is here. The bars are closed. We've, we've been able to have breakfast at our breakfast spot, you know, me and some business partners and some friends. We've got that back open. We've had some dinners here, but they're, they're really spaced out, and they're doing some, you know, appointment only or, you know, reservation only social distancing and the whole nine yards, you know, keeping people tables, closing, moving tables out and separating them. So at least we're getting back to being able to do some stuff, but we're still, they have the casinos locked down, which means the bars are locked down. So I don't know. Sisolak's kind of jumping on that California, Oregon type deal. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I mean, obviously killing travel, killing, you know, <laughs> I struggle for ways to say this right now. Um, you know, Vegas lives on the tourist dollar, the exhibitions, all the shows, 
the other day when uh, there was this spirited trail ride going down in Johnson Valley that you probably heard about, and a lot of people heard about the spirited trail ride, I suppose. Uh, heard a little stuff. Yeah, I looked at flights, and it was $104 each way to come out there. And uh, I couldn't break away for work, but I was like, man, that's insane. That is a insane number. I was talking to Casey Gilbert, and his was on Spirit, 38 bucks round trip from Detroit to – I don't remember if it was Vegas or if it was Ontario, but you have no excuse not to go. He was pouring concrete on that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You know, we all, I, I think a lot of us in this industry that, you know, race guys are construction fab for the most part, these, you know, we kept going. Yeah. And I know you talked about Hartman coming down a little bit ago, David Hartman, the 4,800 driver. Uh, you guys are business partners and we're going to talk about him in a little bit, but yeah, he and I talked Maybe maybe two weeks ago, and he'd talk about that's exactly what had happened. Everything had slowed down on, it, like the office side of his world slowed down, but everything else ramped up. So for sure, the yin and the yang. Well, let's get into Nick Nelson, man. North Carolina, Hickory, North Carolina is where you're from, right? Yes, sir. And I say that like with like some some swagger because that's like NASCAR country, like racing country, like the history around Hickory. Oh yeah, yeah, it's deep right there. We had a lot of we had a handful of drivers within you know ten minutes of my house growing up. And I, my first job was cutting grass at one of the race shops. That is uh, nuts. So is, did you get kind of the hook in you for racing back then? Or was that something that came years later that you were able to draw back to your younger years? I mean, really, I never tried to go after NASCAR. I mean, I've always been into, you know, motorcycles. Started, I mean, I rode a little mini bike when I was two years old and got a four-wheeler, like a four-wheeler when I was three. And then, you know, got into bikes again. And then it just kind of progressed over the years. And then, you know, when I was 16, we got into rock crawling, Jeeps and stuff like that. Obviously, we were, you know, trying to build a Jeep in a garage or like in a garage on a driveway with a high lift and a drill and a hammer or something, like whatever you had, you know, it was super ghetto. Yeah, you. that's but, how we all got started, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you tried all the stupid, like, you know, the three-quarter elliptical buggy spring setups and all this, you know, trinket, like the revolver shackles came out back in the day. You know, you're trying to do whatever you can to get something on the cheap. So. Not going to lie, I had I had a set of revolvers. We I never ran them, though. But I did. I did own a set at one point. I w- kind of wish I knew where they were. Like they need to like hung up on the wall in the shop as like this historical piece. <laughs> I of- know where mine went. I sold mine to Dustin Eisenhower. That I grew up with, uh, with Dustin Eisenhower in North Carolina. Actually, that races forty four hundred. So him and Kendall, his brother, we, and I sold him to him, and he had him on a cruiser. Oh, <laughs> so I don't know what he did with them. But your mom and dad are they still out in Hickory? Or my dad, my parents were divorced when I was three. My okay. dad's in Florida. Okay. Uh, my mom sold her North Carolina house and her husband uh, is dual citizen between North, uh, Canada and the U.S. He's a uh, licensed master captain. So he runs like private private yachts for, you know, big, big private yachts. So they go back and forth between Canada and the U.S., you know, kind of regularly. Oh, very cool. So uh, how long has he done, been a captain, like 30 years, 40 years, something like that? Yeah, he's pretty much done it since he was a kid. You know, he's actually my mom's his first wife. You know, he's and he's in his fifties. You know, so that that was he just been on the boat since he he's just been traveling the world on the boat pretty much until he decided he wanted to kind of slow down. Man, I've been following you know following like Rob Usnick. I know you know Rob and his. Yeah, his, I saw him on his deal. That's cool. Yeah, just taking you know his sport fisher from Panama City Beach to uh, St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> He called me. He was like, all right, I think it's going to take four days, but man, plan on eight. Are you like in? And I was like, man, I just can't get away. Like work's really busy. Like I really thought COVID would have made a stop and it didn't. It actually got busier. So I had about, yeah, it took him 18 or 14 or something. 
significant he blew it out of the water like the wrong direction on on time yeah. and, and this fuel consumption i remember saying like it was gonna be like 14 to 1700 gallons and it was like 2800 gallons just he underestimated everything but what a trip and then we've got yeah, i mean there's some cool stuff in between there and there's some rough stuff we go we go to florida quite a bit with my dad being down there we have family that has been in the boat industry since you know back in the 50s and 60s so we've been sport fishing and doing all that stuff. And, you know, Sean, Sean Stroud, who's a UTV guy, was a good buddy of mine. And we kind of partnered up and I keep all his race stuff out here. So we go back and forth between here in Fort Lauderdale and go fishing. And so, yeah, there's some, there's some rough water out where he was headed. So we have a good time out there on the boats though. Man, I don't lose my number. You need to hit me up for that. Cause, uh, I've, I've really grown accustomed to liking the water here, here in the last, uh, you know, five, 10 years. Love it. Love it. For sure. And then we've got Eric Camo Linker. He's now somehow developed his way into a uh, boat ferrying, a boat Uber driver, like taking big yachts from point A to point B for folks. I've yeah, been following okay. his stuff. That's just, it seems like what a great adventure. I don't think I could commit 40 years to it like your your stepfather, but I think I d- dedicate a couple trips. Well, he's learned some lessons along the way for sure. You know, he's, he's very smart about things. So, you know, hurricane season comes that boats in dry dock for the yearly upgrades. That's not in the water. I mean, and, and it's a hundred and something foot yacht, you know, depending on which one he's on at the time. So it's, these are big, big yachts coming out of the water, but there he makes sure that they come out at the, the best time of the year so that they're safe and they don't want to be out in the water during those times. Awesome. Your grandfather who actually ended up getting you guys in Hickory, how, how at least I know the you ended up in Hickory, he, he's a very successful businessman. What did he do? He was into mining and then moved from mining into trucking. And that's, he had a trucking company in Hickory, North Carolina. And, uh, they actually commuted back and forth up to the mountain every day, but that's, uh, that's kind of where he settled. So we were in the mountains when I was born and, and I was, I was born in Hickory. We lived in the mountains and, uh, ended up going back to Hickory, you know, when my parents got divorced and then, you know, I stayed there pretty much through, through high school until I went to college. You have a sister? Uh, yeah, I do. What's she up to these days? She younger or older? She's, she's nine years younger. Okay. So she's, uh, she's in North, she's in Atlanta. Uh, she has a communications degree, so she's worked for Verizon corporate and just doing some stuff like that and finding her own way. She's not hucking trucks off of <laughs> 300 foot jumps at Pismo. We could not be, it, it'd be hard to be any different. That's for sure. <laughs> on, on almost every, every level. So growing up, I know you're a very athletic dude, you know, just following you and knowing you for all these years, you're always working out. You're always challenging yourself like Spartan race, things along those lines. Were you always athletic as a kid? Were you always a sports guy as a kid? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, moving out of the mountain, when we were in the mountains, there was nobody to hang it. There was no kids really, you know, we were on the mountain and then we got back down to Hickory. So I started, I mean, I just went straight to play it. You know, we had a big neighborhood, lots of kids played basketball and stuff every day and football and ended up just playing all the sports pretty much through high school up into high school. That's where I kind of got where I just really wanted to go the vehicle, you know, motorsports direction. And there's just things that weren't an opportunity for me. You know, I'd love to race motocross or do something, do certain stuff. And it just wasn't, wasn't in the cards the way things were around there. So I had to kind of wait until I was on my own and just kind of go after it by myself, you know, as ultra four developed, like I stayed in rock crawling forever. And so, yeah, it was just, I think it's just the competitive nature more or less. Like it was an athletic thing. I was blessed to have, you know, like, you know, I got, I had good genes and I, I had a lot of opportunities to go and be good at sports. And so not doing that anymore and being so into vehicles and, and stuff really was kind of the, it was inevitable, I guess, to end up wanting to be competitive on the mo- automotive side of things. Now, have you noticed, you know, in, in the stuff that you have done in a vehicle that uh, your fitness has helped you out? 
Yeah. I mean, I think a good example of that, I mean, I, you know, it's not a hundred percent necessary. You know, there's guys that are not in great shape that can go out and drive and can drive the wheels off trucks. You know, I mean, it's not that you have to do it, but I think on the long stuff, especially, you know, like the Vegas arenas and the Baja 1000s and, and these even hammers, for example, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a rough long day in the heat and just getting beat. But, you know, with us having that steering failure at hammers and having the crash in the trophy truck, Sean and I were do, you know, doing almost 90 miles an hour. And the thing snapped to the right and sent us for a ride seven times. And we didn't have a headache, didn't have a sore single muscle. I mean, not a scratch on us. Like we completely like we're 100 percent good after crashing at 90 and rolling seven times. I'm glad you I'm one. I'm glad you're safe. We've all seen the helicopter footage of that. I want to devolve that uh, that wreck here in a little bit. So, yeah, hold hold that note, because I do want to talk of talk more about exactly how hammers what led up to hammers. You being there with your uh, your all wheel drive trophy truck and uh and representing Ultra Four in the T1 race, um, yeah, that's sick. I mean, I, so many people that were cheering for you, and it just went sideways. And actually, pun intended, on it going sideways. Yeah, yeah. all the way. <laughs> like that really happened. <laughs> so, man, you get out of high school over there in uh, in Hickory, small high school. Is that why you played all the sports? Small town. I don't know how big Hickory is. No, I mean, I kind of started backing out of it really in high school because that's where I was kind of ready. I was like ready to to do something different and and really always wanted to kind of, you know, if I had a choice, I could I would have rode motorcycles every day and done nothing else. So once I was able to, you know, get a get a car and start doing stuff and working on stuff that really kind of transitioned towards automotive in high school. So that was kind of the, the phase and the change there. What, what was your first car? I had a Volkswagen Jetta. Okay. That was it. Yeah, that was always, yeah, I couldn't, I mean, I, if I, if I had my choice, I would have had, you know, a diesel truck, like at the time, you know, the power strokes had just come out and they were new and diesels were starting to be different and kind of faster and, you know, cool. But I mean, there was no way I was getting, you know, a $40,000 truck in high school. So it was, no. it, and everybody was into Hondas and the low rider trucks and all that stuff. And I really just didn't want a four cylinder car. And so that was how I ended up with the six cylinder and that thing. And, uh, we ended up putting a full body kit on it and it won best of show and they had air ride and all kinds of other stuff. I don't know. It was just totally, totally the whole other direction, man. I know you like, you can't leave well, well enough alone. Nothing stays stock ever. They had race seats and everything. And actually that, that thing saved my, it saved me because, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there, you know, they're super safe cars. And I was going to my girlfriend's house at the time and I was going to get food and I pulled out of our house and looked down to put the airbags down. And a, two guys, two high school kids were racing each other in stock i mean like one was in an s10 one was in a jeep and they were doing 80 and the dude in the front looked down for a cd and never touched the brakes so both both of them came in at 80 and smashed me sitting at a stop sign and uh oh. the car was still running i still had my foot on the brake because i had i had the race seats and harnesses in it and uh i was looking out the left side window because it bent the seat brackets and everything so bad i got hit so hard so wow yeah daily driven safety right there we saw some race r- some race engineering yeah. carry over yeah, it was crazy. I mean, the, the firefighters were like looking, they're like, who's, who's in this, who was in this? And they, they, they saw it was me. And then they went and looked in there and they were like, man, these seats probably saved your back and your neck and everything. So it was a, I guess a blessing to be in that thing that day. I mean, how old were you and what year was that? I was 16. So what? Late nineties. Yeah. Not, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you get out of a uh, high school there in Hickory and you end up at uh, Appy state Appalachian state university yes, sir. in Boone, North Carolina. And when I found out that was where you f- were from, it was right around the time that they upset Michigan. And I will tell you like that. I'm sure that story is still told in Appalachian state, but I remember being in my house. It was my first house with my wife. We didn't have 
kids yet and having it go down. And I think Sports Illustrated did. I think it's still the biggest blowout upset ever in history. Is that about right? Uh, it was crazy. I was, I really had, I got back to my, I was, they make you stay in a dorm for the first semester and I had, I couldn't move out yet. So I was in the dorm, which was actually in the parking lot of the football stadium. And so I was like, I saw what was going on on TV. So I just opened the window and watched it happen. And then they tore the goalpost down and ran around through town. I mean, there was like thousands of people running through town with the goalpost. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. I remember the chancellor or whatever the head of Appalachian state, like him saying, like he was, they, they delivered like some of the goalposts to his house. They're like, yeah, let them in. Uh, yeah. Let them celebrate. They went all, yeah. I mean, we went, they went down like the main five lane highway with it and then back up around town, down main street where the bars are. And it ended up in campus, like at the end of the day. Because Michigan was ranked number five in the country at that point in time. And they'd scheduled this FCS, you know, like the division two guys to, you know, you guys were a, a pad, right? Uh, For Appalachian sure. State was oh, supposed yeah. to be this fill, filler, easy, this gimme game. Vegas didn't even have odds on it. That's what I remember, like, sticking in my head. You couldn't have even gone and bet on Appalachian State for that game because there were the odds were so blown out, there was no market on it. And being now you're in Vegas, it's funny. But then uh, Michigan had paid Appalachian State $400,000 for that game in 2000. I think that was seven. I believe it was seven. It might have been eight, but somewhere in there. Yeah, it was funny, man. <laughs> and it's even in, in the longest yard with Adam Sandler, they even make the joke that, that they that they schedule a team like App State so that they can get that first win of the year. <laughs> right. Just to make sure you got it. So, yeah. So how was it going to college? You know, what was the college decision to go to, uh, to Appalachian State when, you know, was it local to, to hear you? It's one hour drive or so. Was that it? Or follow a girl there? Or was there a certain program you went up there for? Not, well, it was a business school. My mom went there. It was more that uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just went for, you know, general business management. I, I really wasn't ready to make that choice. I didn't. You're battling what you what you're told you're supposed to do versus like what you want to do. And you're trying to find that. And it just wasn't there yet. So I just went and went through the motions and and tried to figure it out while I was there. You know, it just kind of was more or less the you get good grades, you go to school, you go to college, you do your thing, you get a job. You know, I was just trying to follow the program, I guess, more than anything at the moment. No, I'm fully there, completely there with you on. And I, I followed the exact same path. And it was, let me preface it this way. Nick, do you know what you want to do today? I try to figure it out every day still. I'm yeah, going to grow same. up one day. I'll let you know, man. I'll let you, <laughs> we'll figure that out together. Yeah, you don't grow you don't grow up as a kid like thinking, hey, I want to, you know, I want to do this or I want to do that. Sure, yeah, a race car driver is absolutely one. I think you, you're living out some of that. I've got to live out some of that. There's definitely that is in there, but it's like, did I want to wake up and, uh, and, you know, bid pipeline and build, you know, <laughs> pipelines every day or trade electricity or whatever. Yeah. No, I didn't even know those existed. Those jobs didn't exist. That not, not in a, a kid's head. I mean, I was in the rock crawl, you know, I didn't have like, I, you know, my, my stepdad at the time, you know, he was a, an attorney. We didn't own welders. We didn't have anything. Like I said, I built my Jeep with a, a grinder and a drill and you know, whatever I, you, but yeah, I had to have, I actually put it all together and had it all bolted together and ready and had to have somebody come bring a welding truck and weld it for me because we didn't have any of that. So while I was in business school, I even took like night class. I went over to the night class and signed up for a welding class so I could go like make my own stuff and use the welders. And while I was in college. And that's where I was going to ask you here in a little bit, like, how did, how did that happen? Like, how did you jump to where you're at today? But yeah, no, uh, you do. It's funny. The things you do when you're younger, you'll, you believe that there is this innate, thing that you need to do to appease your parents and the people paying for your college or just there's a status quo that you feel like you have to 
I guess, fit yourself in the square box that someone else has of you. And then you, it's not till years later, you look back and like, man, I was an idiot. I should have been my own person from the very get go. And knowing it was okay. It's okay to not know what you want to be when you grow up. It's okay to not know what degree you should be going after if you're going to college or I don't know. I digress. Especially voc- like vocational stuff, you know, like, I mean, I, you know, you can go weld and make more than most people in normal jobs will ever make coming out of college. Not, you know, obviously the high end professions, but I mean, you come out and do, you know, high end structural or pipeline, like you said, you can make a good living. So, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. No, these guys kill it. I mean, they absolutely kill it. Six figures deep, you know, like 200K, 250K, 300K on the pipeline, like over a year, those guys working every single day, they kill it, but then they spend it all. Like it's, oh yeah. Yeah. You got to burn it when you get back to civilization though. They, they absolutely burn it. So that's always, always funny too. I've got a couple friends that were former like pipeline welders and how large they lived back in the day. And then now what they do today, nothing wrong with what they do today at all. It's just, wow. It's a, a it's a quite the roller coaster. For sure. And that's why, you know, when I settled into that, I kind of, I really wasn't intending to go into structural I have a buddy who owns a concrete company and they just really are always having issues getting quality welding and people that are quick more than anything. And the one thing that I, you know, most people that are listening to this probably, especially if they're, they're builders at all or work on their stuff is to be successful as a custom fabricator. The only way to do it is to be good and be quick at the same time. You know, if you, if you take forever, you're going to just sink because you just can't make enough money quick enough. So knowing him for so long, he, he, he threw it out there a couple of times and we kind of, you know, just kind of forgot about it. And then he came back to me one day and he's like, Hey man, we need some stuff done for real. Like, are you interested? And so I ran some numbers and put it together and we went after it and it, it actually was a pretty good deal. So. Yeah. That's current business. We're getting there. Cause right now you, you live in Vegas and right now. I haven't figured out how you moved to Vegas yet from North Carolina. So how did that all happen? Right, like, all right. Let's connect that dot. So when you got out of Appy State, did you kick around North Carolina for a while before heading to Vegas? No, I was, I was you know, I had like jobs and did, you know, whatever. I mean, I always, I always worked even when I, even I, you know, I used to get dropped off before I could drive. I, you know, I still had jobs and worked when I was in high school and then had jobs at like, you know, tire and oil changing and stuff when I was 16, 17, worked your way up, you know, just trying to be around cars really more, more than anything. When I left there, I left, uh, I left app state like about a semester early. And cause I just, I knew that's not, I knew I wasn't going to sit at a desk and, and I saw so the only way I thought I could maybe make a change was to go to a vocational, some kind of vocational school. And I ended up going to Wyotech in Wyoming for a year. Oh, awesome. So yeah, Jesse Combs and I were actually had some of the same teachers and were there within a, within a, in the same year, actually. Ha. I mean, it is a small world. Once you end up kind of in, in this motorsports and the fabrication world, there's not a ton of names in that space. No, it was cool. And so, you know, it, it really wasn't what I thought it would be. It's a very nice place. Like they have a, they have a lot of really cool equipment and you can use everything. It's still a business, I think in a sense, you know, and, and they have a really nice facility there and it, it really comes down to what you make of it because really they'll put you through just to get you through, you know, to help you get a job as like an oil, an oil change guy or a guy changing parts at a dealership. So like, for example, I think I was the, I was the first or second person to ever build a chassis in chassis fab. And even as long as the school had been there. Well, it's one of those things, right? It's you get out what you put in. So if you're willing to put in a whole bunch, you're going to get out a whole bunch. Yeah. And I think the, the thing I was looking for is, you know, I, I had been always dreaming of building a tube chassis. Like that's, you know, I'm like, we're in Jeeps and I'm, you know, you always wanted to make that next step to custom stuff. So I really was looking for somebody to help me really jump forward. 
already like kind of gone to that school and taught myself to weld and spent and figured that out. And so I was, I was trying to figure out all this other stuff and it really ended up being more or less like uh kind of here's the tools do it, do whatever you, you know, once you pass your little tests and stuff, which you could do in like a day, if you were good, if you were good enough, it really was just, you basically paid to have the shop open for you. Okay. And so that's kind of how it ended up being. And so I just ended up spending the time in there. I, I, I drew a chassis and built it. And that's what I, that's what I used the school for actually. Well, then you're connecting some dots for me and tell me if I'm jumping to conclusions here. That is, is that how it did when you left Wyotech, is that how you ended up with the relationship with Randy Rod out there at Jimmy's four by four? No, I actually went back home. Okay. I went straight. I went back to North Carolina, kind of messed around, started a little, like I I went more, I went actually went back to a, uh, heavy equipment company that a buddy of mine's dad worked at and kind of still figured that, you know, you, you would do, you, you had to have some kind of real job really hadn't tried to go after the race life yet. He was high up in the company. It was privately owned company. So I figured I would go learn all the equipment. I was a weld. I, they hired me as their welder too. So I did all their fab work, which was, you know, I'd have manufacturers come in and we would do fixes on their equipments and I would build the stuff with, with their engineers and stuff like that. And so I got to do some some kind of cool stuff with big crane companies and stuff like that. But uh, at the end of the day, I just, it wasn't what I wanted to do either. And I was going from work, I'd work all day and then I was renting a shop and I'd go do off-road stuff at night till midnight, go home, be back at work at seven in the morning every day. And I know this is probably a little bit out of order. Cause I want to talk about this, like under the portion about uh, the chapter that's like about off-road and how you got into it and all that. But in my head, mentally, I, I have a mental note that, were you in the mud dogs? So the mud dogs were, are, are like really close by. And so you had like the big Dixie bogger guys, which was the group I was in Okay. and the mud dogs. And so we had all of us kind of went and volunteered the time. And one of the guys, uh, one of the families had a, had a farm. And so they had quite a bit of land and, and the guys were all in the crawl, you know, we were, it was our, that was who we all wheeled with. And so everybody went and built all these trails and they were pretty cool. And then the mud dogs had their, the devil's playground. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So they, that was the two big groups in that area. And then you had all the guys up, you know, even past North Carolina towards Tennessee, you know, around app state. So you had a lot of guys up there too, but that's all kind of different areas. Well, yeah, you just get, as we learned, you know, not being from Appalachia or any part of the mountains in that, for that regard, but even just, you know, talking to Blyler and him talking about how the, just the dialects and the people are just different from one mountain ridge over or one valley over or one cut over or whatever it is. And so similar down there where you're at, right? Where you're from? For sure. And I, I, that's the fun, that's the, like the main thing I get from people when they figure out that I'm from there, they're like, why don't you sound like those people on swamp, swamp hunters or whatever, you know, like, what? yeah, that's like the, they, I always want to understand why I don't have like a crazy, which I have, I mean, my accent's there, but it's just not super thick. So I do get that quite often. Yeah, I remember seeing like crawl magazine, like, and that's what stuck in my head when initially I started looking at your stuff. I was like, man, I wonder is I remember a specific mud dog vehicle that was in, uh, in crawl mag and then meeting the guy that owned it a few years later being, uh, Travis Watford and Watford race yeah. 4,400. And then now developing a relation. Yeah. You know, it's been a few years ago, but I, I had a conference out in, uh, where he's at and he took me, he came and picked me up at the hotel and we went and ate a barbecue there in North Carolina. And, uh, it's cool to, you know, what ultra four is afforded. I'm sure you is likewise myself, uh, the ability, the people that we've met and know from all over the world and ability, you know, fly into somebody's airport, have a meeting and some other stuff and be like, call them and be like, Hey, you want to go have some beers? Just catch up. And you're like, yeah, yeah. You know, birds of a yep. feather flock together. 
Yeah, I've met some some super, super cool people. So many, actually, you know, over the years just from racing. And that's people. And then I've reconnected. Like, I ran into Dustin Eisenhower in Moab one day on on Thanksgiving. I could hear his accent, actually. We were looking for Suicide Hill, and we shut the buggies off. And I hear this dude yelling, and I, I'm like, I know that guy. And I drive around the corner. It's Dustin sitting there in his Land Cruiser. So... You know, we like ended up hanging back out again, you know, because we're all out here. And then you end up meeting, like you said, all these people, even if you didn't know them, even like, you know, Travis, I didn't know Travis at the time, really. So, well, but then, you know, running into him out here with Ultra Four and King of the Hammers and stuff. So there's a lot of guys that you end up coming together with, like you said, because it's just a, a common, common denominator. Right. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest edition, recovery rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a Custom Splice solution. Now, back to the show. So what year did you end up actually making the move out West? Was it after 2010 where you went to uh, King of the Hammers the first time or was no, it? I was here in 08. I hear like right in the crash of when great Vegas was down. I think it was 08, okay. I believe. And today you just li- live, you got a girlfriend and a couple dogs today. Yeah. 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 That's it. Just got, got the big, got the big dogs here and just, uh, just doing life, man. Just trying to hang in there. All right. So I follow on your Instagram. You were fully into some serious shooting. I want to get that out of the way before we get into some off-road stuff, but right. dude, like you've got a couple of 50 BMGs, <laughs> right? I, I see like you're like $7, $7, $7, just throwing it down the range. You know, I'd never cool. shoulder fired a 50 and I was like, you know, we were, I was going to put one round in it and my buddy's standing there and he's like, dude, if you're going to do it, fill it up. Like we got to do, you got to do it right. So I shot you. If you, yeah, you can see, I shot the first one to see what it was like and it was nothing. So I just let it eat. <laughs> I figured I had to. Had to go ahead and let it go, which is perfect. You like once you know who Nick is, you're like, and you see, it, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, you knew that was going to happen as soon as you shouldered <laughs> it. Like it was going to be. So I saw, it, I, was like, I was like, man, that is insane. So being able to shoot there, you guys can. I mean, it's almost like the country. You can go out to the desert and fire off, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest misconception of Vegas is that it's like this. We all live on the strip, and you know, that's it. And we go to bars or clubs all the time, and really, it's. I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, Rob Mack lives here and you have all these, all these racers that live here. It's kind of a big central hub and there's so many trails and so many, 
places to hike and shoot and climb. And, you know, there's lakes and Havasu and all this stuff. We have so much stuff right here that we never go to the strip. You know, we're always, you know, we take the dogs, go hiking, go shooting in the afternoon. We can go shooting and be home in two hours, you know, and it's just, uh, it's actually a pretty cool place to live once you get, get away from the city. Well, yeah, I mean, I've had friends that live there that said, you know, I don't even realize the strip exists unless I go down there. Like you can live in Vegas and not have to worry about the casinos at all or any of that. Like life goes not on. Drive. It's still a busy town. Yeah. Just drive by it. There you go. Unless, unless like family or some good friends are here or for a reason or SEMA, I don't go to the strip. That's the only way. How, how have you acclimated to the God awful heat in the summer? You never get used to it. It's, it's terrible. No, it's, it's, it's horrible. Especially well, like being on the job site, you know, I mean, that was really the, the hardest part of the welding game was, you know, it's 120 degrees and you got to spend 10 hours wearing leathers, standing, you know, in boots and 120 degree with the wind blowing 40. So it just feels like there's like a fire blowing on you. When it got that hot, the first couple of days, I got sick physically, you know, by the end of the day. And so I started mix, I, I, cause I was just pounding water and you just could not get enough water. You couldn't hydrate. So I started mixing in like the BCAAs, you know, for hydration and I would alternate back and forth. And that was like how I got it under control was that. Cause otherwise you just lose all your water. Yeah. I still struggle with that today. I mean, Houston, it's, I mean, we're already in the nineties. We had some 95 degree days the last couple of days and I overheated once and I don't know. I was around 30 years old. I just can't do heat anymore, man. I get outside. If it's over 90, I'm done. Like I can't hardly do shit. I got a pool in a day bed. Like, like you have the casino, you can sit out by the pool get wet, lay on the day bed and relax. That's how you beat it. That's how you beat it. Yep. Hey, so uh, you mentioned Lake time. You mentioned Lake Havasu. You and David Hartman have gotten into uh, some little uh, mini boat stuff. Yeah. We've been playing with little death boats a little bit, you know, having, having some fun doing something a little different. And so you just recently got in some uh, some lake time in one of those. How how was early lake time, early lake season down there in one of those little things? Before we're going to talk about building them here in a little bit, but yeah, I mean the first time we took it out was up in Colorado during the lockdown. You know, we were up in Colorado playing around in the river, and uh, we had a blast. Actually, it was I mean it was cold still, so it was rough up there because it wasn't ready yet. But Havasu already, you know, we were there last week or two weeks ago, and it it's already a hundred degrees like it is here. We've touched a hundred in Vegas already, so it was actually super super nice. I mean, and it's already busy too. You know, that's the boat ramp was so busy it was closed. I think by eight thirty a.m. it was already at max capacity, and oh, so wow. we shut it down. So, I mean, it was, it was wide open, like spring break wide open already. Well, awesome. No, I, and I'm very excited about to talk about those because I have so many questions and I've texted David Hartman about that a bunch of them just cause I love, they look like fun little, little boats to have. So I'm going to dig in your head in that here a little bit. All right. So yeah, man. So today your, your business, your day to day, surprisingly, and this shouldn't come as any surprise to some people, but it, I know it will come surprise to some people, but you do all your own fab work. I mean, based on this interview, it's obvious you do, but I think there's this misnomer misconception via pirate and via social media and via you as just a, a race celebrity that somebody else did your fabric, mainly Jimmy's. And I know from history, like you would, you're building a new car. I know you go out to Cortez and you live off somebody's couch for two months while you uh, build your car. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, I guess you kind of asked about Randy and how that happened. And it really, I I'd seen, you know, his ads in crawl or whatever, you know, for the one piece hoods. And I was, I was wanting to build a buggy and I'd never met Randy and a good buddy of mine here in Vegas grew up with him in Cortez. He's a crane operator here in Vegas. And so we were talking about building the new buggy, you know, building the buggy to go race King of the hammers. And he's like, yeah. And I told him about the hood and he's like, well, I grew up with that guy. I know him real well. So 
that's how we ended up at Hammers in 2010 or 2009, maybe nine. Was that the year that Lauren won? Was it nine? Jason Shear won nine. Lauren, so won, Lauren 10. won ten. Okay, so we went in ten and we pitted for Lauren and Derek and all those guys because we just went out just to kind of get a grasp on things. I'm, that's how, and that's when I met Randy. And so we dumped fuel for Lauren and Derek and fixed Derek's injector. And I think Lauren ended up beating Derek by like you know twenty seconds or something crazy. So it was, it was like this crazy experience the first time I was there. Derek had said that that was a uh, that was his time to win. Like he. <laughs> talked about everything he did that equaled him not winning. Like it was his race to lose and he did all the things to lose it and, and how frustrated he was about that. It was such a different game back then, you know, like the, it was just so different. And so after those guys did so well, I kind of saw that Jimmy's would kind of, you know, there, there'd be a way better opportunity kind of being associated with somebody that has a name in the sport because I was coming from zero and I was building a car in my garage and the chassis was already done. So I, t- I was talking to Randy and I called him after when we got home and told him I was what I was doing. And I was like, Hey, I got this chassis. It's already done. But if you want to do something together, you know, I'll buy, I'll, I'll buy a chassis from you and I'll sell this one. And I already had somebody that wanted it. So I offloaded it, got a chassis from him, had him up, like built his first uh, inch and three quarter chassis. Cause they had never done anything over inch and a half yet. He ended up, so they sent me a bear chassis and I built it out and then raced it. I think twice we won blue water after blue water that ran hammers for the first time in 11 and i actually got that's we had a really good run and got into third place lost the drive shaft and ended up finishing 20th and after randy saw us go from like 50th to third in the first lap he's he's like all right this guy can this guy can do something so uh i had zero help before that i think bulldog winch was like the only guy that gave me anything for that race <laughs> so you know that was the one thing that i had going to hammers all right. Then this is starting to starting to add on. I'm starting to peel back the layers of the Nick Nelson onion and and all the stuff I didn't know about you. Kind of like I knew enough enough to not know. So that okay. So that car that you took that year, that Jimmy's car, you ran Blue Water in it. Now, how many more times did you run Blue Water in that car, or maybe a different car? I only raced that car three times. I raced it at Stampede, the the OG original Stampede. You know, the one in Reno. And that's how I got my spot at Hammers because we finished what we finished in the top 10 or 15 or something top 10 in that to get a spot at Hammers. My first race ever. That was the first time I ever drove the car or first time I ever raced the car in between that and Hammers. We went and ran the blue water and won blue water. Then we went to Hammers, got that finish and I bent the axle housing all three times in the front and both rear spindles. <laughs> so I was like, dude, this is just not working out. So Randy and I sat and talked about it. And that's how we, I told him, I was like, man, I, we got to do something else. You know, like I, I thought I did all the right stuff, putting you know, this aftermarket 60 in the front and had the 14 bolt the back and had all the, you know, I thought we had the good stuff back in the day. You know, the car was probably $30,000 to build and, uh, Caprera, Brian Caprera bought that car and it, they ran it for years. And it's, it was one of the cars we actually drove in China It's still going, it's still together to this day. <laughs> oh, wow. So Randy and I just, were, I, I told him, I was like, man, I want to try the A-arm thing. I think we got to do something different. And, you know, I'd, I'd ridden in some desert trucks in Vegas and I was like, man, if you want to, you know, if you wanted to help me, if you want to help me, you know, try to tackle this project. And he's like, yeah, if you're willing to go for it, let's do it. So we jumped on that thinking we could do it for like 60 grand, which didn't happen because <laughs> that's what I sold my car for. And that's what I had. So that turned into the normal story of trying to build a car, obviously. No, that's all always the way it works. You just have to keep keep moving it up, moving the bar up. <laughs> it's kind of fun. So that's uh, 
that's everybody asks how I got to the car I have. And it started with an $8,500 CJ. And I took all the parts from the CJ, put them in the, the tube chassis we talked about from Wyotech, sold it for like 17 or 18, put that in the Jimmy's car to build it, doubled the money and sold it for 60. And then took all that money to build the IFS car and then sold that car to build the next car. And so I just kept parlaying the money from each car into the next car until I got where we are today. Well, and then there for a while, you had two cars in the shop, right? You had the big car and your uh, all-wheel drive trophy truck. Yeah, the truck, the truck, that's a whole long story in itself. And if we we can go into that, if you want to. <laughs> uh, we're going to get there. That's the, I got to save that for later. I got to save a nugget for down the road. I'm going to pull you back to work today your own fab work, you're doing prep work. I know you prep all your own cars, all your own prep. And then I think in the past you've prepped for some other people like, like Joe DeLucci and some guys, right? Yeah, we've done stuff. Joe's a good buddy of mine. And you know, so we've, we've done quite a bit of stuff for them. We re- rebuilt all the suspension on their, uh, on their Brentel truck. They have, we changed everything up on it, built new axle housings, you know, kind of re- redid everything on that. And we've done some racing together in Mexico for the thousand and some other just for fun stuff down around San Felipe. Had a good time down there for sure. So how did you get into construction? Is it Northrop? Is it Blanton? Is it some guys you knew in Vegas? I mean, how did you get, because you go, going from fab work to doing some construction stuff now and now doing structural steel, what's the connection there? What, and how did, how did all that come to be? Well, I mean, I grew up, I guess my dad always, he's owned restaurants and I mean, even they had a hotel when I was born, like a small mountain hotel. And that went into, you know, he's, but he's always built everything himself and always been in construction. And so, and a lot of my family, majority of the, that, my dad's side of the family has been in construction, which he still is to this day. He does hurricane tie down systems in Florida on, on new builds and stuff like that. So he's in, he's been in it in his whole life. And uh, like that whole side of the family I grew up with is into, they do a lot of like Scottish style, all stone and timber and iron, like old, you know, castle looking houses in the East coast in the mountains. Oh, so you, you had a very deep pool of knowledge to draw from. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, you know, it didn't just come from nothing. It was, I grew up in it when, I mean, when I was, when I was three years, two years old, I think we built Nick's restaurant. My dad built Nick's restaurant when I was a kid in the mountains. And so I, I had my little tool belt and my, in my cowboy boots running around, probably breaking things or doing something, but I mean, I kind of grew up in the middle of it. I got you now. So I'm not, I'm connecting dots, man. <laughs> You're doing right a, good, on. a very good job of uh, connecting dots between Wyotech and structural and, and doing uh, equipment repairs back in North Carolina. And then finally making that decide. I mean, what was the deciding factor to say I'm pulling up because this is a big move, right? You're living in North Carolina. You're from there. What happened? What was the catalyst to say, I'm going to move all the way to Las Vegas? Even at Wyo, when I was, at, I'd always wanted to go to SEMA originally back in the day, you know, and because they still do the rock crawling at SEMA and everything. And so that was like a big deal when they had the, was it U-Rock or whoever was putting it on back in the day? They had it right there where now it's like Vaughn drifting and doing all that. That was a, a badass man-made rock crawling course. And so when I was out here in Wyoming, it was my first chance to come down, came down, saw SEMA, you know, really wanted to do it more. And then when I was at home kind of working, doing the rock, building rock crawlers and hanging out and had a little business, you know, tried to do a little business there. I was 21 years old trying to open a fab business while I was also working as, you know, on heavy equipment at the same time, doing it, doing the candle at both ends thing. And it, it kind of just got to that point where we tried to put on a race and I tried to partner with a guy to kind of help grow it to a real business. And it just none of it really worked. And we we put on this race and back in the mountains 
or uh, back in the woods in North Carolina. And it was a cool deal, but it was kind of like a time trial thing more than anything. You know, it really wasn't racing. So it really just, I, I didn't feel like it was going to go anywhere being there. So it was kind of that opportunity where it's like, all right, if I'm going to do it, I'm not tied to anything. Now's the time to do Now's it. So, to- yep. I'd come out to SEMA again and was like, yeah, like this is the place it's in the middle of everything. You know, you have the hammers out here that was just starting to happen. And it's just, it's in the, it was kind of the central off-road Mecca, I guess, in a sense, not like Moab where, you know, you have a one crawling place, which is super cool, but it was kind of close to everything good. So I thought it'd be a home base. I think that's why, you know, a lot of best in the desert operates out of Vegas. That's why you have so many racers that race out of Vegas. You've got, it seems that there's a lot of people that have shops there in Vegas. Yeah. I mean, there's some huge teams out of here, you know, you have Baldwin and the Herbst guys. I mean, there, there are other shops in California, but they have shops here and, you know, McCacharin and all these, you know, all these big guys, there's some rock crawler people here that have kind of come and gone over the years, but there's always still that following in this area. And, you know, hammers is less than four hours from my door. I can be in San Felipe in eight hours and Ensenada in seven. And, you know, I mean, you can do whatever you want, or you can be in Colorado wheeling or Utah wheeling in a couple hours too. So it just, it's hard to beat. You're making a very good argument right now, except for this whole su- summer heat thing. That's the that's the crux of the, <laughs> if you can get through the unbearable 120 degrees. I mean, I can sit in, sit in my kitchen, turn the oven on to 425 and just open the door and sit there. And it feels roughly the same as walking on the strip. Yeah, you got to put a fan inside of it, though, yeah. so you get the, the heat blowing on you. Make sure yeah, you're there. Draw, dry out everything on <laughs> your your eye, eyelids need to even be dried out. You know, that's like how bad it is. It's rough, man. I won't argue with you for sure. So you end up as you're parlaying cars, parlaying cars. I know this story, and actually, you're probably going to tell me at some point. You're like, all right, why you have to edit, you have to edit that one out. Um, you end up on Nitto tires. Yep, that was kind of that thing, you know. So you know, I made the jump to Randy at Jimmy's, and once he saw that I could drive, he actually he I like he got behind me, and he was the only dude that did. Like I had no. I had zero help. Like I said, I mean, I mean, I have to say it like it was so funny that Bulldog helped me out with the winch because it was kind of like that. It's such a small thing, but it was like the very first piece you got and you're super stoked about it, you know. And then when I got with Randy, Randy put me together with Radflow and Glenn and we had a good relationship and it was awesome. We won the championship with those guys. And that same time, Randy I didn't have tires because I was I, I was paying for BFGs for crawlers and I had I, I had like. I didn't even go home with four good tires after hammers with sticky crawlers on, you know, I, I finished the race and then walked out the next morning and had another flat or two and had no extra spares. So once we had sold that car and got the, the IFS car started, Randy knew he's like, all right, you know, I'm, he just worked the deal with Nitto for them, for, for, you know, Cotton and Lauren and Derek. And I still really was just starting to scratch the surface and, and, you know, people to figure out I was even there and, Randy went out on a limb and gave me like eight tires that were off his contract and they lost it when they saw my car full nuclear meltdown. Like melt. Yeah, it was, it was Chernobyl. Like it was bad. And so the story I was told was you were in Cortez, the picture surfaced on the internet of your new car on Nittos and you basically had to jump in a truck and drive to LA and sign some contracts like same day or something. Was that, is that too far off? Close. I could get used tires here easy. So really, when even when I ran that stampede race, I didn't even have crawlers like crawlers. I couldn't afford them. So I bought used tires for my buddy on a trophy truck team and had KR desert tires 
on the car. So we were racing on desert trophy truck takeoffs that were used. And we just ponied up and bought six crawlers for hammers that year. I had a bunch of those cheap takeoffs. So I built the car on KRs, the desert tire BFGs. So no one had seen it yet. We showed up at the lake bed. And since Randy, Randy and I had talked about it and he was going to give me the, like, you know, the eight tires or whatever, I, we already had Nitto on the fenders to help ease the pain or whatever was going to happen. Right. And they, yeah, that's when they melted down and they found out. So they told me I couldn't even get in my car. Like they had to have a, con- a contract signed. They decided to let me run them. But yeah, they brought people out like to the lake bed there and made me sign the contract before I could drive the car for liability. <laughs> wow. So I, it, the story I'd heard was very similar. Well, I mean, it could it be was, like, it was close. I mean, you're right there. It's close. Yeah. I, and I just saw some pictures just a couple, oh, let's call it a week ago, two weeks ago now, um, of a very, very well-known big name driving a car that had Nitto stickers all over it, but it had BFGs. I saw that. And his quote was, these are the best tires I've ever driven on. <laughs> and yeah. then that, that's what was circulating. Luckily, this guy doesn't have social media, but whoever posted it, I mean, I was in tears laughing. Like part of it was ribbing, but at the same time, you know, we're kind of at this level and you are, you're at this level, that guy's at this level that you kind of can't rib there when it's real money, it's real businesses, it's real dollars, it's real people's livelihoods. It is, man. It's a big deal, especially when you're, if you're in, yeah, like where we are in, and we've been fortunate to have really the same partners almost this and since that like first year or two change up, we really have probably only changed like two partners the entire time. So I'm really thankful to have had like, you know, good products and good relationships with all these people over the years. But Randy was a big, like, that was kind of the point, I guess, is Randy was a huge part of that because I would have never gotten the like you know kmc at the time he he kind of facilitated the kmc deal the nitto deal and the radflow deal which was the only way i made it to races like i i couldn't I didn't have the money to do it without having that that help well i think i need to get randy on here i've stopped and seen him in cortez a couple of times now i need to just i need to interview him and talk talk to him he's so quiet though he's such a cool dude but i get and i can gather why you wanted to ready-made team like to set up and we've talked about this in the past with other guys the leverage you get from a multi multi-car attack on something like the hammers you know the jimmy's army that's legit there's a lot of effort that goes into each guy but when it's this team effort you get a share notes it's this shared in the wins shared in the wrenching shared in the tears the pain that's kind of what this whole sport and family and whole deal is about anyway it's this camaraderie it is, yeah, for sure. You know, like Jason Blanton was one of those people I met at the original Stampede, and he could, he could drive. So he was really really good in the rocks, and that's how we kind of ended up hanging out. Was there's just people plugging the trail up, and we're trying to pre run, and we all kind of we kind of took some hard lines around everybody, and ended up running in together, and ended up having you know, and then we started having beers afterwards, and that's how Blanton and, and I ended up being friends. And then I wanted to help him kind of get in a better car, and so went to Randy, and Randy was like, "Yeah, let's do it." So we kind of got Jason in there, and. It kind you know, it kept growing over the years. People kept just kind of, uh, you know, accumulating. Randy was kind of building this little, this little bit of what effectively became, I guess, the Jimmy's Army, like you said. This is my tangent. This is a Jimmy's car specific tangent. <laughs> on the rear trailing arms, right? You know, the rear four link on y'all's cars, the Jimmy's cars, you have the trailing arm is actually the upper link with the your shock and bypass mounted to the upper link, not the lower link. I get. One reason to do that would be to keep the, the bypass and the coil carriers right, out of the rocks. You know, they're more protected higher up. But by moving them up, 
is it you put them in the airflow, they can stay cooler, but you also have a, you know, a weight transfer because those things are pretty high. So now they're further up on the chassis. I've never heard anyone, well, to be honest, I've never asked the question. What's the, the genesis behind that idea of doing it so differently than what we see across all genres of off-road? The first kind of reason we did it and it was just for ground clearance more than anything, you know, cause hammers was kind of King at the time. We weren't really doing these big races, but that was kind of the point of the IFS car was to find a way to be fast and be able to do the rocks. And Randy had designed the, the straight axle car for me. You know, I mean, I just bought one of his cars, the first, you know, or bought one of the bare chassis, whatever first, and really had no input on it at that point, other than the way I finished it. Moving into the IFS car, it was, it was new ground for all of us. So I mean, and I, I I will ask questions and dig and do whatever I can to understand things as best I can. So he was really open. He's like, hey, dude, I, you know, I'm going to help you. And like, you know, I'll, I'll give you whatever I've got. And, and then, let's, you know, we kind of put our heads together and came up with every bit of knowledge we could figure out to try to build a better car. And I really started to understand suspension geometry at that point. And that's when I decided to start understanding shock tuning and really what makes things work and why they work the way they work. And, and the biggest argument I've ever seen people saying that it doesn't work is, is you'll see people like on pirate or, you know, or Facebook say like, Oh, if it was better, BJ Baldwin would do it. Like, there's never theory behind it. It's always just the, if they was good, this guy would run it. And, but if you look at pro four trucks, a lot of pro four trucks run a similar setup to, that I do. And those trucks have to corner. And my thing was I wanted ground clearance and I wanted the truck to corner and I don't want to, you know, I want it to be positive. It's, I mean, we get into geometry and all kinds of stuff, but it, it effectively just changes the roll center height. And there's things that come with that. And we just address it with a sway bar. Everybody runs a sway bar. It's not like I have to run a sway bar and this guy doesn't, I might just run a little bit different like diameter bar, but you know, that car, all my cars. I mean, if you go back and look through all the pictures, when that's when somebody talks talks bad on it, I'm like, you know, find a picture of the car of my car getting out of shape. They, they just they they usually handle really really well. It's kind of ridiculous, and that's you know how well they sail. You know, and that's kind of where we went with your viral content and how many times you jump it and how many videos I've seen and how we led out of this whole conversation tonight. Uh, along those lines, was I can't believe how flat they sail. Yeah, we do. We really 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 put a lot into shock tuning and feel like that's where you're supposed to start with a car. Like a car shouldn't go to a race just to go to a race. Your car should go get tuned. It should be on the, it should go straight to the dyno and then straight to shock tuning before it ever goes anywhere else. And you know, it's not a make three turns and call it a day. I mean, you have to, you have to go out there and ride through the terrible day, the terrible beginnings to get to that point. We never settled. It wasn't like, Oh, we had a good shock tuning day. Now the car is great. We would get it as good as we could and then we'd go race it. And then we're like, all right, like it's good here, but it needs to be better doing this. So we'd fix that. And then you, the car gets faster and then we need to, you know, then we need to tweak this and it becomes this, like this thing where, you know, basically we got to that point nowadays where I couldn't run the last car flat out because the car was just too fast for the components that are available today. I mean, obviously you've kind of seen the results of that on that yellow car, the number 40, ultra four 4400 car that uh that you just recently sold what like what was the the weight balance of that car was it fairly 50 50 or 25 25 25 25 or was it biased a little bit to the back or no it was like 51 49 and so was my other the original ifs car actually came out about that way because that car at the time nobody had done it we put the fuel tank in the front 
so that we didn't have this just super rear heavy IFS car. Cause that was kind of the thing, the car, all the cars that were out there were all rear engine, rear cell, you know, rear everything. And they would just, they wouldn't climb well cause they had no front weight. So we had, you know, I built a custom cell to fit in the front to get some weight on the front of the car. And then when I did Khaleesi, you know, I really wanted to move. I want, I needed more fuel and you just can't get enough in the front. So that's how we came up with the mid, the midship cell that ends up actually going down under the driver's seat and everything too. So it's nice and low. No, I can vouch for that. I mean, I, my car was, uh, everything in the back and that's why there's, I don't think that there's a picture of it anywhere climbing anything because I just didn't, <laughs> I, I never put it there, but with the thing go 130 across big whoops. Yes. And it loved them. And it just sat back and just ate. Yep. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a good thrill climbing rocks. Ah, it was a compromise I was willing to make. I think we finally, you know, like I guess it was kind of the culmination of in the beginning, I was kind of running the Jimmy's car because they had experience and time and they had a good, a good platform and resale was another big part of it too. Cause I knew I would want to, I would need to get that money out to go to do something else. And I thought I would get more. And then Randy and I became, you know, ended up becoming such good friends and then it was it was nice to be able to kind of turn the table and actually bring him technology and help him advance his product by helping him with all the suspension geometry and and giving them better ideas and ways to make things kind of progress, you know, and, and Lauren does the same thing. And kind of, you know, we all kind of put our two cents in and try to come up with the best possible outcome at the end of the day. Well, I think you hinted at it, like value in the race car at the end of the day at the end of the year, at the end of the season, we see it in, in go-karts and in, in cart racing where a cart that is one year old is actually more valuable than a cart that's brand new. And the reason being the cart that's brand new has no testing on it, no tuning on it. It hasn't had any of the bugs worked out versus a car after season one with a top tier team, it's had tuning, it's had the bugs worked out. It's had any problem it's going to have has happened. And now it's a shakedown dialed car that a guy could buy it totally turnkey get in and go out and he's a contender that weekend versus going through the trials and tribulations of figuring out it didn't work or working out bugs and all that BS. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why my car sold so quickly, you know, Khaleesi sold so well and the Canadians bought it and they came out and you know, they're super good people and nobody knew who they were really. And they came out and qualified wet in the top 10 or top 15. And the first, I mean, and the dude probably had like not even a hundred miles in the car and he just beat, 90 other dudes who've been there and have cars dialed by jumping in this car. But those other guys are like the spirited trail riders, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's some, of, there's, there's guys that are for real and there's guys that are out there to have fun. And that's no, totally no, no. part of the game. That was actually probably too, too many cheap shot jabs on a, I think Dave did a really badass thing a couple of weeks ago or a week ago with his race doing the OGs plus the Kings. And then uh, he kind of, I felt a little bit watered down when he opened it up to kind of everybody uh, that was able to show up and, and do their trail ride. But I think it was a really cool deal. I, I seeing JR leave on a land rush start with his original KOH winning Bronco with the current owner in the passenger seat just had, I don't know. It, it felt like it felt cool to watch that. It felt like, wow, like history being like coming full circle on that event. Now nah, they did a good job. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, I remember racing against that thing in 2011, you know, it was, it was out there still going hard and it still is to this day. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. 
Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine. This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing, and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the talent tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Brandon hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Brandon my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Brannick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brannick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small, their amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brannick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy Pre-Runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannick, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannickMotorsports.com. Brannick is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. So we've got some new racers. We talked about new racers getting in cars, you know, that's they're dialed in, worked out, and that's the value that, you know, a guy like you can bring to the table for your new cars. You build it, you race it, and then it's uh, now it's shaken down. It's ready to continue to win, continue to put guys on the podium. But we had a guy come in a couple years ago, wanted to, you know, big name, wanted to get his feet wet in the sport, wanted to open up uh, different avenues for his marketing partners, different avenues uh, and revenue streams for his business. And, uh, you know, that guy's name's Vaughn Gittin Jr. He's a, you know, world famous drifter. He came in, he did his homework and he reaches out to, to Randy and he's in, having a car built. What was the conversation in there where one or both or all of those guys called you to come out and, or was it Lauren involved call you and say, Hey, do you have time to shake down this car and work on this car and kind of get Vaughn comfortable with Rocky? the his his bronco is you were pretty involved yes vaughn's you know vaughn's a smart guy he understands the the game and and knew that he didn't know what he needed to to walk into it and make that car fast you know fast enough to go race and and, or and and wanted to learn stuff and he and you know he's one of those people that's you know people have different opinions of everybody you know until they meet somebody and he's really open to he was super open to listening and wanting to work with stuff and so randy asked me to tune the car do the shocks and stuff on it so we got it to vegas did all the shock tuning on it 
got it pretty good. You know, we still needed a little work. We were trying to find some springs and do some stuff and get it all dialed. And that's kind of how, and then we did it, put it, got it on the dyno and then end up going out with him to Johnson Valley for a weekend and kind of getting his feet wet. And, you know, he was, he had never really, he'd driven, well, he'd driven the, the spec car the year before. So that was his time in a car. He'd never driven anything IFS, anything aside from that spec car. And so he had a little bit of an idea about what he was in for. So we spent the weekend out in Johnson Valley kind of going over, running some high speed stuff and and working on, you know, the, we were at, me and Vaughn were joking about it the other day about the bump because, you know, he his first bump was pretty rough, you know, and there was some pretty violent stuff going down. And and now, you know, he's gotten it, gotten it pretty figured out and he's, he's doing well and really did good in that leather class. And now it's moved up to 4,400 to being successful there. So I think he's smart enough to put the right people in place to, to help him where he doesn't know. And he's willing to listen. You know, it's some people you can tell to do something. And I've worked with a lot of guys over the years and I'll try to help them like set up and keep corner speed and do things. And you really have to have faith that it's going to work, you know? And I guess he was one of the easier people because he's used to backing into a wall at 90 miles an hour. So when I told him to just not lift and throw the car inside, you know, back the car in and stand on it, he just did what I told him to do. And it was awesome. And then that's all you have, you know, once you tell him once he's going to figure, he'll figure it out from now on. Now, he's a student of the game. Like he is, he's very serious. He's very cool. He's very laid back, but he's also intense at the same time and takes everything so, just so seriously. And I think that's, uh, for me, that was really refreshing to be able to work with the couple times I've been with him, uh, to work with a guy that takes everything as professionally and seriously as he does. Yeah. It's nice when you, when you go and, and you put your time in and somebody, We'll utilize it because there's so many times that we we tried to help people in the ultra four world or, or just in the race world. And I'm not bagging on anybody. Just you keep telling them and keep trying to help them do something. And they're just not either not willing or they're just, you know, not in that frame of mind to, to go there. And so it's kind of a waste of time in a sense if they're not willing to to commit and go after it. Yeah, sometimes it takes a, you know, some sleeping on it and some coming around to it or, you know, you're, the paths weren't ready to cross. Like that was a bridge that you were ready to cross, but the bridge hadn't even been built for them yet. And then, you know, the light will come on down the road. They'll be like, oh, yeah, I think Ultra 4 was quite a bit more. It was a grassroots sport in the beginning. You know, it was kind of a sport that everybody could go out and kind of everybody had a chance in the beginning. And, and that's, that's gone. You know, I mean, you see how fast the cars are today and, and like how much fun Lauren and myself and, and Shear had battling off the lead at hammers, you know, and, and just playing that game and, and you're trying to find that, find that slow enough speed. That's, you know, you going fast is, is the easy part. It's going slow enough is the hard part. Slow enough for to the save guys the car. Serious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because when you get if you're not scared and you're real and you're willing to let it eat and go for it, you have to you can back that down. But if you're not willing to go there, then it's really, uh, you know, there's just nothing you can do about that. Yeah, you can't teach speed. No, you can you can slow it down. But sorry, if, if they just won't go, there's, there's not a lot you can do with it. So open up the like the like the Von getting the Nitto can of worms and and some of that stuff that has opened up some crazy doors for you. And you actually mentioned we mentioned a car a little bit ago uh, about still running around in China. You've had the opportunity based on all these little relationships and all these little ins and outs and your credibility and what you've been able to do behind the wheel and market yourself. You've had some opportunities to race in China. You recently did an auto salon deal over in Saudi Arabia last fall. 
Yeah, I mean, the you know, even and you know, Blanton actually was one of the people that kind of helped facilitate that deal in China. And it, it kind of, you know, it was a weird that was a super weird deal in China. And there was a lot of things going down. And at the end of the day, all of us that went kind of stuck together to try to make it a legit deal. And obviously, like they were still doing whatever they were trying to do with that. We had a blast over there. Robbie Gordon ended up over there. You know, we had a whole we had Jeremy from Gearworks. We had our whole crew with us. It was we had a blast. It would have been cool if it would have possibly turned into something. But it's a hard place to be. It wasn't much of a vacation if we didn't have, you know, but having all the homies together made it a good time. And then Vaughn, you know, Vaughn was the connection for Vaughn and Lauren were the ones that brought me in for the auto salon because they needed an extra truck. And so that worked out super cool. You know, it was it was a blast. And we went over there and just had fun and put on a show for people, which, you know, really, I think is maybe why I get to do those things, because they know that we'll do entertaining things more than more than just go, you know, drive around. They know we'll we'll do we'll do whatever people want to see. And what was that? Was that in Riyadh? Yeah, Riyadh. Yep. Yeah, it it looked really cool, and all the all the pictures coming back, and all the video coming back, it did. It looked like you guys put on a show. But you've done some stuff very similar. You know, the I'm gonna call it like the parking lot drifting with with uh with <laughs> with, with the parking lot antics. You know, everybody has seen video of like Lauren or Casey Curry. You know, full full all four tires blowing smoke, rolling smoke, and then throw the car sideways at you know, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. They look cool. I mean, an ultra four rolling smoke off four tires. There's nothing cooler. I mean, there just really isn't. Yeah. I think Lauren, I mean, I have to give it to Lauren. I think he was the first one that, that did it good, you know, that really went for it. And I don't, yeah, I don't know that. I mean, Casey's never, Casey did the jump thing, but he didn't really get down and and kill tires with us. But Lauren and I, and then Lauren and I got to do it together. It just kept progressing into this, like, let's see what we can make the truck do. And it's pretty, pretty ridiculous what you can get away with. And Campbell's I've seen, uh, you know, Waylon has done some of that, some of that work. And so, I mean, where where have those all gone down? Like SEMA, LS Fest. Yeah. Nitto Enthusiast Day is probably the biggest ones because they just turn us loose with no time. Like there's really no time limit or anything. It's really just how much you're willing to beat your junk to death. And they're, they're all about it. So, and, and we're given rides, you know, there's people in the car that have never, you know, people that have never been in an off-road car and, you shoot them over the jump and then, and then turn the car, you know, back backwards on pavement at 70 when with all four tires smoking and they're just, they just have no idea what to think about it. Sensory overload. I mean, I had like, you know, uh, like a 60 year old woman that works at Nitto in the car and she just got out and she just gave me this huge high five and a hug. She was like the coolest thing. She just thought it was amazing. So it's cool. I, I really enjoy that kind of stuff because even the people watching, you know, they'll come out and they'll just be like, man, this is like one of the, one of the raddest things I've ever seen, you know, it's just something different than what they've seen before. And yeah, so I think that's the, the most fun is just making people enjoy it and, ha- and everybody's having a good time. Well, I mean, I think that goes in with, you know, so I, you know, having to stalk you a little bit here, uh, your LinkedIn connection says, I think your job is a viral content creator. Is that right? Something like that, I guess. Viral I don't know. Content. Trying to make you got to make it try to sound good, huh? <laughs> no, it sounds it sounds great. It sounds great. So and and so that's where we've kind of led there. You do have some you know racing history to back it up, right? I mean, you won Ultra Four National Championship points championship a couple of years ago. It wasn't very long ago. Seventeen. Yeah, I think that was twelve. Yeah, we won the championship and we got Sportsman of the Year that year, which was super cool. That was that was a rad thing to get, you know, on top of it and. You know, I, when when Randy and I built that car, 
when when we sat, we were sitting down having a Pacifico, you know, at, at midnight after working 17 hours or whatever for day 87 in a row, or, you know, you just lose track of it. And he's like, what's your goal this year? And I was like, I want to win a championship. And, you know, we're just trying to not to kill it. Like to try not to die from exhaustion to get this thing done. And, and we did, we went out and won a championship that year. And then after that, it was kind of like, all right, what's next? And it was, it was fun winning a championship, but, but we drew, I drove a totally different way that year. Yeah, I drove to finish every mile of every race guaranteed and never the whole time. You just feel like you're being reined in, like you, you're not able to just go out and have, have fun. And so after that, it was like, all right, we did that. We proved we can do it. Now let's see what we can make these cars physically do. Well, I, I think that's part of the you know value in the team effort. I think that's the value in the strategy that that was the goal that you set out and you stuck to it and you accomplished it. And then you're a guy that didn't say, well, I did it once. I don't want people to think I'm lucky. I need to do it again. You said, all right, I checked the box. What's next? I think a big thing for me, and that's another reason we built the all-wheel drive trophy truck was to kind of show everybody what these, like the, what these cars are capable of, you know, cause we all, we all laugh and we still joke to this day. Like when we go do something with desert trucks or whatever in an ultra four car and you know, we have there, people will say something you're like, Oh man, it's just an old, it's just an old rock donkey. You know, don't worry about it. And <laughs> just kind of keep rolling with the same joke that was what we were. I mean, it was kind of a joke. The cars were so slow back in the day and you were around, we, you know, we, we all were, we drove them and they were rough and, they weren't fast and they just weren't built with race car parts like they are now. And so we really wanted to try to turn that around and show people what they can do. Well, you were one of the first guys to turn heads in off-road outside of ultra four, 4,400, what are rock sports in the desert community. You showed up at the blue water best in the desert. It's a two day event and you put on a clinic. Yeah, I think we actually that was that was one of the for the first time I felt like we were actually like, you know, we we're, we're making headway, we're going the right direction here. Like we we qualified overall third, I think, in trophy truck and one trophy truck and class one. You know, unlimiteds, the best of the best, the best in the desert. Literally, that's the race monitor, best in the desert. And you you put it down, you shot down it, and you it everyone craned their necks, opened their eyes. And then that was day one. Didn't you guys close out day one with you in P1? I think we were second. I think we were second. I think we ended up, we started third and ended up second. But we got a, our GPS shut off. And that's why we run two GPSs to this day. There was kind of one of those less school of hard knocks lessons. Because we got to the top of the hill at the end of Shea Road. And they had all the skull and crossbones and arrows and we thought we were going the wrong way and our gps was off so we turned and went around the mountain the wrong way so we got a we got a penalty for that it moved us actually i think from first or or it was either first or second back to like you know the weeds or something but that was but i pulled up to casey and i told him he was waiting for us and we pulled up and we're like hey we we screwed up we lost gps and he's like yeah we figured it wasn't intentional because i mean it was in front of a thousand people it's not like we meant to do it he's like yeah it happens it's cool We'll give you a 15 minute penalty and we'll get after it again tomorrow. You know, he was super cool about it. He understood and we gathered our stuff back together. But the damage was done. The people had already recognized. I think Shannon Campbell had been out there. Was Shannon there that year as well? And Shannon also had some very amazing side by side door to door action with somebody and just walked away from him in the rough stuff. His car ass bouncing left to right, you know, just <laughs> tank slapping down the whoops. But, you know, Shannon, he wasn't going to let out, right? Nope, nope, not at all. 
So then I, I show up, uh, I won't say maybe it was the next year, and Casey comes up to me, and this is Casey, folks, you know, just, oh, a, yeah. just an amazing man. You know, sad we lost him a few years ago, but he came up and he said, so uh, so you're Nick Nelson. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not Nick Nelson. Well, Nick Nelson came out here with a four-wheel drive King of the Hammers car, and he did pretty good. So he set the bar pretty high for you. You going to be able to keep up to that? And I was like, <laughs> Nick set a pretty pretty high bar, Casey. I'm gonna do as good as I can, okay? And he goes, and you know, he gives you like the thumbs up, the Casey, the Casey thumbs up, yeah, booyah, yeah, a little booyah, uh, <laughs> get the booyah. But the to, to show up, like he was very happy to have us there. But too that you know, immediately we got compared to you and the clinic that you'd put on because everyone had apparently talked about it from then on. Like these are no longer rock donkeys. You can't talk about them like that. You can't put them in the back. They're outrunning trophy trucks today. We missed a corner in qualifying too. I had a, I, we totally just missed a 90, right. And still qualified third. And we thought we were going to be in like last or something because we'd missed that corner. And so we went out and we were on the, we were on the boat sitting at Fox's on the river, you know, the bar hanging out, having a beer. And the text came in that we were third. We were like, oh, holy shit. You know, like we're actually there. So we were, we were bummed, like so bummed because we burned, we would we actually would have had the pole by the time we lost. So we were so bummed, but so excited at the same time. I remember being like the most bittersweet feeling ever. No, I mean, that's, I had not, I didn't get a third, but, uh, to finish qualifying at the mint, you know, one of the years and finish and go back. And, uh, we're all kind of hanging out in the trailer and everyone's like, Hey, let's walk over and see like where you're at. And there was 90, I think there was 90 trucks in class ones in that race. And we were 16 and to qualify yeah. 16 was like, are you in the names that were after me? And we're like, guys that like, dude, I'm just a redneck from Texas. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I've watched these guys on TV, you know, looking up to them, watch them on, you know, dust of glory, you know, uh, stalking them on, uh, on, you know, race desert, all those places. Like, God, these guys are, you know, these are legends and, uh, and to be able to, you know, rub elbows when it comes to timing and, and skills, it's, it's validating though, right? It's so validating. It is. I mean, we, we got some of that with that. Our first hammers, you know, we really went out there expecting to be like the guys, the new guys in the back and for to be passing all these guys who are, who are in hammers, you know, and it's our first one was like that. All right. Like we, we actually might be all right here. You know, we, we have a chance to do some work with this. And so I do, I remember that, that, that feeling is kind of what makes you, makes you want to push and makes you want to do better. Like each time, you know, you're like, all right, like we we're here, we can do this. And then next time you try to do better and better and better and better and better. And that's just, it's a never ending, you know, you're chasing it. So King of the Hammers 2020, you've got the all wheel drive trophy truck out. It's fresh back off the boat after being in, in Saudi Arabia over there in Riyadh for the auto salon deal. You get in on the Thursday, the T1 race, you did, you're doing pretty good. Walk us through your prep and walk us through like the decision, like to go ahead and sign up and, and, and race that event. Well, the year before David called me and he's like, Hey, if you want a spot, I know you got both trucks. Cause we were trying to sell the trophy truck at the time, obviously, like I didn't intend to have two trucks. So I built Khaleesi or started it with the full intention of having that money back before it was over. You know, like I would get it sold in the meantime and then would, you know, I'd be all right. So then that turned into obviously like a, same as it always is trying to finish a car. It's always a nightmare. And that was nightmare times five because now I didn't have that money back. So it was like every credit card, everything you can do to make hammers, you know, and then we went out and lost the motor. And I, and without having that money, there was no way 
you know, David, David, give me a T1 spot so I could run both races. And I just couldn't afford to do it. There's just no way. Like we barely made it there with the other car. It was scratching pennies together to get there. So the next year when we, since we didn't have Khaleesi, I was like, all right, if the, you know, if the truck's here, we'll go for sure. You know, we got to try it. We got to try to get this thing out where it needs to be one time at least. Cause that truck's just been, it's been like the curse ever since that thing was done. And there's a whole story behind that thing, which is a long one, but uh, we were hoping to kind of knock the, knock that curse off of that thing. And obviously it, it didn't happen. It happened quite the other way. Yeah. It's, you're, you're having a finishing issue, right? That thing is just been, I mean, we can go test for five miles or 500 miles and not have a single problem. And then we go to qualifying and break a rocker arm in the motor or, you know, shear the steering bolts off at the mint that time. I mean, it's like at mile seven, you know, it doesn't matter if we test five miles or 500, it's just like right there every time. We have some problem with that truck. There was a point where you and Lauren were both talking about building like 6,100 trucks and then they became all wheel drive trucks and then Lauren didn't. And then, but you did. Well, so I guess to get into that, the, the whole, I was originally going to build a pro four. Okay, that truck was cool. supposed to, that truck was supposed to be a pro four. Cause I really, really liked Glenn Helen. I really liked, you know, all the short course racing we were doing with ultra four and I, you know, kind of to move into that, sport where you know you have tv coverage and you have fans in the stands and where you can maybe make actually make it as a privateer driver you know that's you're probably your best shot money wise you know being able to bring in money so nitto was trying to they were piddling you know they were sponsoring the torque series so we flew in to sturgis during torque talked to bj bartwell who owned it at the time and was trying to work this whole deal out and the tire never came together and so we were months and months and months on standby like the truck was i had a crew chief lined up who was ricky johnson's crew chief when he won his championships in torque he was gonna be my crew chief uh so he had you know course notes setup notes uh, had built the trucks for ricky and we were ready to go to laser with a truck and never got a tire and i didn't want to burn the bridge with nitto and we had the off-road tire and i had a handshake deal for an engine program it wasn't a contract on paper it was a handshake so because I had an engine deal to build a trophy truck, which I would have never done knowing that we couldn't afford to run the trophy truck without like a full engine sponsor. Right. Well, as the trucks, so we ended up deciding to build the trophy truck cause we had the opportunity for the motor, the, we had the parts sitting there, we had everything ready to go. So we built that instead and halfway through events out, outside of my control changed and that deal went away. And I got, so we got left with the truck with no engine package and no help at the end of the day. So that's the story that nobody really knows about that truck. Well, and you and I have had this discussion just about things that you can stress about and things you can't stress about and keeping your mental game spot on. And you can worry and stress all you want, but you should only work and focus on stressing about things you can control and then learn to, I guess, categorize and catalog things you can't control and then ranking them, right? And that was something that completely out of your control and you're going to beat yourself up about it, but at the same time, hard to not stress about something like that, but should you have? That was the first time that like, I really could, like I lost, I, I let it get control. I lost control of it and let it take over. Cause I'd worked so hard to get where I was to build this net, you know, have these marketing partners and have all these opportunities. And we have this, this new thing come in that's, and it has all this potential and I've worked so hard to build my name in the industry the last thing I ever wanted was to look like the guy who can't, who didn't deliver and made promises he couldn't keep. And that's like, 
I mean, if nothing else, like you have your word, you know, that's like your, that's all you got. got. You lose everything else. You have that. And I felt like it was, it was nobody's fault, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm the one responsible regardless of what happened, you know, because I had a commitment made to me. And in that respect, I made a commitment to other people. So now I'm not going to throw them under the bus. It's not anybody's fault, but at the end, it was just something. And I didn't have the money to just, I can't go to Croyer and drop 80 or hundred grand. Like it's just not there. You know, that was one of those things that was a really, really hard lesson. Like I got, I made myself physically sick, stressing to the, like to the max about how to fix this problem where there really was nothing I could do about it. And sometimes, you know, just going out and talking to each of those guys that you had this, you know, deals with or plan deals with and be like, dude, here's what happened. Dude, we're human things. And we've all, you know, here's the thing. You would have never failed if you would have never tried. Right. <laughs> it felt like a huge backfire and a failure because you're, you're ready to go. It's not for lack of effort or lack of, I mean, the truck was done. The truck was complete. It was sitting there for months, just waiting and nothing ever showed up. So. I did. I went, I mean, I went to everybody. I didn't really tell them the whole story. I just told them that it was, you know, I kind of gave them a, a, a quick, the PC you know, version cl- cliffs notes of it, because like I said, I just didn't want to be, I did also on top of that, I didn't want to be the guy going in there and blaming it on other people either. Like I was trying to figure out how to salvage this, this whole thing and not, and not let anybody down, but I was, and it was just, it was just a, it was a really hard thing to deal with. Like, you know, finding a sweet spot to, where do you, where do you do? Well, I think you did the right thing, right? You walk away from it with two things, right? One that you've had to, you know, basically talk to, talk to everyone that was involved and, uh, and walk everything back. Um, there's a, there's a lot of value in that even, you know, and then there's the recognition of failure and then what you do with failure. And I think when you look at failure, dude, it happened, but then you figured out a way to move forward. You still, I just saw you race that truck a few months ago. So I don't know how much of a failure you want to say it was two years ago, but you've taken it and you've continued to push it forward and forward and forward and move the ball. And that's the key. I mean, it's the ones that, you know, they hit that, that brick wall that there's a failure and then that's it. They turn around like it's a dead end and they move backwards. You actually, you know, well, it's yeah, I hit the wall, but look, I can go left and I can go right. And maybe at some point I get a chance to go around the wall and you've, you've done that. You know, the trophy truck was the first time, you know, when we, well, when we built the first IFS car, you know, I, I brought everything I thought, that I could, you know, that I, that I could culminate, you know, to bring to Randy, to bring to Jimmy's and help. Cause I knew Lauren, you know, we knew Lauren was going to be building a twin to my car. So we kind of helped try to do everything we could to build this team. Then the trophy truck, I could do whatever I wanted to because nobody else was dependent on it. So we tried different things in geometry that was very similar to that car, but they were improvements. And we, there were things that I could try that was no, not going to affect anybody else. And we crushed it. The truck really works good. So then the more we learned, the more we learned, the more we learned, he took everything from that trophy truck. And that's what went into Khaleesi. So, and the new generation that Jimmy's four by four has in their front end, you know, is, is very similar geometry to the trophy truck and even improved upon now everything that we, that I knew we could do better. We gave to that. So everybody that has that new, that newest generation of front end has all that geometry and stuff that we've, you know, swung at and learned over the years. And I think, and Randy gets to give that to his customers, you know, and give them a good car. So. I think that's a good give back, right? From you, you know, being the test bed, pushed them. I mean, there's no one out else out there pushing as hard on, on those cars in singular instances than you. I mean, Lauren is out there banging the hell out of his car and Derek West banging the hell out of his car. I mean, there's a lot of Jimmy's cars getting the crap beat out of them. 
but from single stance, single instances, nobody's doing them bigger. Yeah, man, we've gotten some super cool opportunities to really like put that thing to work. You know, I think I always wanted to go back and race a desert race like we talked about in the Ultra 4 car. And getting to do that at Battle at Prim this year this year was probably one of the most fun days I've ever had in a race car. You know, there's a handful of those days that stick out in your mind. And Battle at Prim, you know, setting the, we set the overall pole in Trophy Truck in Class 1. And by, I think, at least two seconds, two and a half seconds, three, something right, right in there. You know, it wasn't. It's not a best in the desert race. It was a snow race. But there's still a lot of fast guys there. And James Dean, you know, there's not many guys in the desert faster than James Dean, the LVDC car here in Vegas. Bright green. Yep. Yep. And I mean, you see him go, he was the only guy that passed Bryce, I think at Vegas Arena and Bryce won it. He lost it. You know, he passed Bryce and then lost to trans and then Bryce won. And so for me to be able to, and James, I know his grandfather really well, his dad, him, they're like, a, they're a great family. His grandfather is the one that gave BJ Baldwin and you know, all these other guys, they're, they're starting racing. He's kind of the grandfather of off-road Butch Dean. And so Butch after the race for Butch to say it was one of the best races he's ever watched. I think it was like one of the best, like the biggest compliments I've ever gotten him watching me and his grandson battle and, and say it was the, one of the best things he's ever seen. Yeah. I think I got familiar with, uh, Butch's whole program, uh, back in the day when, uh, like TJ Flores was working for him, doing prep work for him and racing out of his shop. Yeah. TJ won all his championships out of under, underneath Butch. And was his was his guy, you know, for everything. And then TJ did a little bit. Uh, he got into forty four hundred for a little bit, trophy truck for a little bit, and then just completely fell out of the scene. I think. I don't think he's involved in any any race stuff today. Yeah, I haven't seen him in a long time. That was a bad. Uh, it's, it's it sucks. He was he was a good dude. He just kind of whatever happened, you know. It's, it's it's just life, I guess. Right. Things happen. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but. With extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples, they've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back-ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website, so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more 
more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website, magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you're a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. Well, so let's talk about, uh, let's shift gears a little bit before I have some other questions for you, but, uh, shifting gears, I want to shift over, uh, social media, leveraging, marketing yourself. We talked, you know, when we opened up, uh, the session, you know, talked about some really big air stuff that I've seen you do, you know, like late, like Lake Elsinore on the pro two pro four track, just sending it nationals. I think there was some stuff at nationals, just full out flat, getting it. You brought up a uh, prim. I think you did rage at the river recently. Maybe that was last year in your trophy truck and like the road crossing, you know, clearing, clearing the pavement. That's always pretty cool. When you can see somebody clear pavement, not a lot of guys stay wooded like that. That was all she had. We gave her everything she had. I was like the end car. I think it was like a mile and a half without lifting to get to like a, whatever the speed we could get, you know, <laughs> I think the, the dike jump down off prim that you coming off the dike jump looking like a rocket ship and you know carrying oh probably everything of two 200 220 maybe even 240 uh that's that was a, yeah we left i think at 127 on that one it was 127 miles an hour when we took off yeah and you carrying almost a football field uh in the air you know it's like 20 foot at the beginning and then it just tapers off in a wedge but obviously you you, you have a propensity to go big air what are the steps that you go through, you, Nick Nelson, and your, what are you looking at when you say, you know what, I see an opportunity there for me to do X, Y, Z with my car and I can do it. You know, you're almost, I'm not going to say you're stunt, a stunt man, but you're kind of a stunt man on this. You're not clearly not doing math. Uh, I don't think, I think it's all, you know, in your head. What are the steps in the processes you go through to kind of qualify? Am I going to hit this jump? Is this something that do you walk it off and then uh, you kind of decide game on or game off or how do you handle that? Because there's not a lot of people doing what you do in an ultra four car today. It's funny. I think the the only one that I ever walked I, that I really even gave any thought to was potato salad hill, which is probably the smallest and easiest out of all of them. But there's just it's a blind takeoff and there's a lot of boulders down there and you have a short parking lot. So my main thing was. There's a lot of people there too, because there was trucks at the bottom of the hill. So if you rolled it or something, you're going to hit people's vehicles. I mean, it was, that was kind of one of those, Lauren and I were standing there laughing about it and he was there and he'd done it. You know, Lauren's actually jumped that one too. So that was about the only one that I think I actually gave any, any thought to was just trying to be safe about it and not take somebody out or end up in a Creek bed or something stupid. But, um, and that one was the simplest and easiest probably. And then any of the other jumps, really like the Elsinore or the Prim, I know how the truck, I know, I know we tune the truck. I know it flies good. And if you watch in the video at Pismo, it's just like the trucks work just like a dirt bike when you get into the, the big air like that. So you can actually move the truck with brakes or gas or just letting off the gas or anything. So if you watch the Pismo jump about halfway through the air, you'll hear the throttle and watch the front end come up a little bit, about five or 10 degrees, just to re-situate the car for the second half. And then try to bring the tire speed back up so you don't shock the drivetrain and stuff like that. That one was, I crept up on that one a little bit in Prim because you if you go too far, you're in trouble. You can go short and you're not in trouble. So I think I, and nobody was there hitting it and nobody gave me a speed, even though the other guys were there there was really nobody there hitting it at the time and none of the guys had a number for me. So I had to 
take a shot in the dark really and just guess. So I hit it and I was not far off. I was a little bit short. And then I just walked it out. I just added a couple of miles an hour, like two or three miles an hour to about two more times. And that put me right where I need to be. And then we just kept hitting it over and over and over. And then, yeah, it was just, it was huge though. And I didn't realize the guy in front of me, he landed and he cleared it and broke his back and he pulled up. I thought he broke the truck. I didn't even realize it. So I went around and did it and I landed in the flats too. And that was the hardest hit I've ever taken in the car in, in 10, 12 years or whatever we've been doing this. Like it by far was, if I didn't have my R3 on, I get, I would have been hurt probably too. But having hard shell seats, good shocks, proper shock tuning, like, you know, I run, we have Mastercraft good belts. We have, I had my R3, my carbon fiber helmet, which I have, you know, lightweight on my neck. And still like those two strings that come up the back of your neck were, I mean, it was like a couple weeks of just like pretty rough after that one. I had no doubt that you were taking all the precautions to go do something like that. But at the same time, you know, there's always the, man, I, I don't mind hitting big stuff, but at the same time, I don't like being the first one to do it. And well, you it was kind of, I, like, I thought, you know, these guys have been out there a bunch. This, these guys, you know, I've seen the videos of them. So I'm thinking like, cool, you know, like somebody's going to give me at least some kind of pace to start with, you know, since I've never seen it. And everybody's just staring at me when we get there. So I'm like, well, I guess I'll just hit it. So I just got in my, I just jumped back in my car and went around and went for it. And I think I hit it like 56 miles an hour or something just to see. And that's kind of the difference though. You kind of have to, you, you gotta be a little, if you're doing stuff like that, you have to kind of, you've seen a lot. I mean, we've all seen the videos, these dudes just going full retard and getting seriously hurt, like in the dunes, you know, and doing these mega huge jumps just to flat. And it's, it's not going to go ever go well. You got to be smart about it. Well, yeah, I think the first one I saw that I was really just absolutely floored with there. I, I think it was at Pismo too. Uh, a couple of years ago it was a uh, Frank Taylor in that like white Missoula, like pre-runner truck. And he just, you know, I think at him, there's a guy named turbo Mike that's out of Texas. They yeah. were all out there and just, you know, just sailing, you know, just sailing these big ass trucks. So we knew it could be done, but when yours came out, I don't know, it sounds like I'm, I'm blowing your head up too much, but I'm still enamored with how far it almost does. Like I said, people I worked with watched the video and were like, that's fake. Like, no, it, it's not fake. I guess we just, it just doesn't feel like when watching the video. I was like, man, that's rad. But when you're in the car, it just, it's, it's fun. You know, you, it just doesn't feel much different than, a lot of the other things we do. I think Elsinore was the first one that gave me that taste of the big huck that I was like, and I just never, like I always wanted to do it all the time after that. So this is, you really helped you contribute and give back to, uh, you know, your sponsors, give them back uh, extra marketing material. You know, they're able to see, you know, every time a viral hit of yours comes out, they, uh, they of course, you know, get their namesake is out there. You're giving back in that regard. Have you been able to, you know, monetize that any further have you been able to uh to push the nick nelson motorsports name further has there been any ideas for what your next thing is going to be you're going to go out and do some 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 other crazy stuff what's next in that regard you know it's funny like i i we really did nose of the grindstone race stuff like hardcore like we're gonna make every race we're gonna race these series we're gonna do this we're gonna do this and like one day you'll make it one day you'll make it and this past year we more or less just kind of went out and had fun, like really. And, and I had no idea what was going to happen at Pismo. I got there to hang out with these guys and we just went out and literally just spent the day having a good time. And that's what came of it. And it went, you know, bigger than anything, you know, I've set poles at hammers and won, won the mint or done this or that. And it's really like, everybody's like, 
congratulations, cool, like the people that know you. But no, no kid in the Midwest is going to share that. You know, he doesn't. It's not selling shocks for ADS. But when they when they see you huck it, you know, the mega huck at Pismo, that's something that they're going to look at and be like, "Two to one, what kind of shocks are on that thing, or we, what kind of wheels, or what kind of this, you know, or or just share it to their friends because even if you're not a car dude, when you see something that big, you're like, man, that's badass. Well, that's exactly where I was going. Like you're starting, yeah. you know, the recognition of other ways to give back value to, uh, to your partners. I think you're onto something. I don't know exactly what it is or how you can monetize it or work it out or what that next viral hit is. Like I said, will Gentile talking about like, uh, milk run. He goes, man, yeah. you know, if, if, if I knew that running Lauren's car through a garage door was going to get me 10 million hits, we would have done it much earlier. That's kind of the funny thing though, is, is, and you kind of hit on it is, you know, you, you go to a race or something, you have this big master plan for how this is going to like work out, you know, and you're going to get this footage and whatever, but it's the days you go out and you got some homies with you and you're messing around and you jump potato salad hill or you huck the dune or, you know, whatever. I think, and, and that ends up being the big thing that and it's organic, I guess maybe it's not because it's not like you said, half of them are. I don't even have a, a film crew there. It's cell phone video. Somebody gave you that you might not even know. Yeah. And this is, it's just cool, but you know, it just works out that way. If we could figure out what that formula is and replicate the formula, we'd all be rich. Yeah. I think watching the, watching the Jim Connor files, I haven't watched all of it, but I watched the first couple episodes and that was Ken blocks thing was he never intended to do it twice. Like he was going to build it. He was going to do a cool video and never do it again. And then when he, when they were like, cool, man, what's next? He's like, Oh shit. Like, I, I don't know I, what I, that was it. That's all I got. Like, what do you, what do you want me to do? Now they're you know, 10 plus in, you know, building cars. Yeah, for he each was one. finally like, I'm done with this. Like I, it's, I think what I think Pastrana is going to do it now or something. It seems like he's going to take over it because he's just like, all right, I think I'm, I think I'm out. I think I've got enough. Again, this is now we're going to downshift to another gear here uh, and really good segue to some of the, the work that you've done. But you have a very interesting and tight relationship with Jeremy Witt over at Gearworks. Yeah. And it, it seemed like you were one of the first guys really pushing the HP 10s and doing test work for Jeremy in the high pinion 10s. You've done some stuff with uh, his Turbo Hydro 400 program. He's co-driven for you. How cool is that to be involved in? prototypical being prototypical stuff. It's kind of funny how that happened. It was totally random. I, I was out at hammers when I moved out here, I still had a Rockwell buggy. I didn't have a race car. I had like an old, I had an East coast, like Harlan, Kentucky type, big 47 LTB Rockwell buggy. And I was at hammers just out wheeling for fun. And Jeremy was out there and he'd ridden out with his dad, didn't have anything out there to stay. And we were staying for the weekend and I met him through a friend and I was like, I got another seat for the weekend. So, and I, and I, we, I live in Vegas. So I'll, you know, you can roll back with, so we ended up hanging out the weekend and that's how I met him and brought him back to Vegas. And he took me and showed me gear works. And he showed me like the 36 flying trophy truck axles there, you know, and we're, we're used to like, we didn't have 40 spline stuff back then, you know, some chrome like 35 spines was dope. And, uh, I'm like, man, this shit is crazy. You know, I, I don't even know like who runs this stuff. And it just blew my mind what, looking at all the cool stuff they had in there and trophy trucks and stuff. Like, I think it was like not even two years later after Ben and all those axle housings, when I was going to build the IFS car, I called him and I was like, man, remember all that stuff you showed me? I need it. And, uh, he said, go. Yeah. I remember Les from fig speed. He's a good buddy of mine. You know, I don't think you know Les from back in the day when he used to race and he's like, what are you doing? Like that stuff's so expensive. He thought I was just, just retarded, you know, cause I was going to run this super expensive trophy truck stuff. 
And it was like the best choice I ever made because I went from tearing up everything, every race to this one time up front cost of running just full trophy truck hubs and axles and gears to like, I can run a, I ran three seasons on hubs, you know, and never been to spindle again, never had. So it, it paid off quite well in the long run. And that's how that relationship really started. That was just the ball just started rolling down the hill. Yeah. Jeremy's almost become, uh, you know, the bellwether by which, uh, guys are, you know, uh, uh running, you know, third members. Like if you're not you know, running a, a GearWorks third, you're just asking for trouble. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, and I hate, I don't even want to say this out loud, but I've never had it. I've never lost a trans from GearWorks ever. I never lost a converter, a trans, anything. I mean, We've torn up diffs, but really the only diffs we we have problems with are obviously the the big block was just too much for the reverse rotation gear. You know, that's what we kept having problems with in Khaleesi. We, we could go lead a race, but it just made so much torque that it, with that gear being backwards, not supported, it's just, it's just, you know, a time bomb. Yeah. I've heard some guys working on maybe some reversers to put on the transfer case to reverse that. Yeah. And, and, you know, in that car, it, that would have been if the car had been laid out differently, I could have done that. But just to redo it, I think that's what Lauren did on his. And they had to move the links, which changed the geometry, which changed everything. And that car I spent, I mean, probably hundreds of hours with Jason at Jimmy's making sure that that the anti squat and the pinion cycle and everything was perfect to match that front end because everything we didn't we built the we built the suspension in space and the fuel tank and the drivetrain and everything else just followed like it was no compromises to suspension. So really it just wasn't even really possible to put it back together, right. And move everything where it needed to be to go to low opinion. All right, man. Outside of that, I have two future questions for you. Um, the first one, we'll take it one at a time. The diamond T man, you were building a North Mr. Northrop style, little diamond T, uh, trophy rat, something like a trophy rat. What happened to that on hold? Uh, yeah, just with this, when we ended up not selling, we ended up having both trucks still in the shop. And so I just couldn't throw any money at it. Gotcha. And it's, it's, in, it's in my shop right now and it's not, it's not going to be a wrap. She's going to be a little something different that nobody's done yet. So it'll be cool. It'll come around sometime. Front end's built for it right now. Like all, I built that whole new two wheel drive suspension kit. So it's sitting in the shop built, ready to go in the cab sitting there and trailing arms are sitting there, but we may put that front end in another project we're weighing the options when you when you're asking what's next there I'm, i've got I'm, I'm debating on a couple things so it's just sitting there ready to go when I, until i decide what that what to do i mean that's good i mean it's okay not to have answers just like when we were talking about going to college you know what do you want to be when you grow up eh, it's okay not to know well I, I really 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 want to do that project and it will get done someday i yeah i just i'm all about that thing but uh in the meantime with what we have laying around the shop we may make something we can just go out and and go big with and May just have make a hucker just to go out and have fun and send big. All right. I like it. All right. Here's my last one. This is this All is right. this is the one I've been looking forward to for, for quite some time here. <laughs> Perfect. Mini jet boats. Mini jets. Okay, so, so we're talking like ten foot to twelve foot aluminum boats. Yep. With a yeah, UHMW. A UMHW skids underneath the boat. So yep. you can take this thing and what you tend to do is you, you get the aluminum boat, you go find yourself a salvaged high horsepower jet ski, take all the crap out of the jet ski, everything, but the, throw the hole away, take the cool stuff, bolt it into this, uh, aluminum low profile mini jet boat with UMHW skids on the bottom. And then you go, uh, river ripping 
good for sandbars and rock bars or ice or whatever. They fit in really tight spaces. So it's kind of like a jet ski, but it's way more robust. Yeah. It's funny. It was kind of that thing I'd been, I had my eye on it quite a while and, uh, just really want to do one, but you know, we're so busy and everything else is kind of the way, way more priority. And I kept sending them to Dave messing with Dave Hartman. I kept, I'd send them to him all the time. And Dave had just enough time idle where he, he's like, man, we got it. We're going to, we got to do it. We got to do it. And I'm like, all right, if you do it, I like, I'll do it. I'll do one too. Dave actually is the one that like pushed it to finally happen. So they're, they're just super rad, man. We, we love them. They, we had him and I and both women in, in it and we, you know, we're doing 50 miles an hour and two inches of water. And you can just, I mean, you can see the bottom, there's nothing there and you're just gliding across it and then you can jump to bars and whatever you want to do is you can just get away with murder. It's kind of like the ultra four car. It's like a side by side or ultra four car of water. That's what, it, that's what they look like. And you can take them anywhere. And like, I saw some guys, uh, you know, they even got little winches on the front for, you know, winching over stuff, you know, tree falls when you're in, you know, really tight, you know, back, back country, backwoods, uh, water or the stuff where the guys are like running Alaska, Montana, Idaho, like the big rapid stuff. Um, David Hartman really got me kind of hooked, you know, when I, I'd already seen them run across my Instagram and then he got one. What else would you guys do? You guys bought four of them. Yeah, we got four of them. Uh, Cody at laser nut has one. And then, uh, uh, the, another guy up in junction has the fourth one. And then we have another round coming. And so we did four seaters on this one. So you can kind of have a cruiser and take everybody with you. And then I just picked up another 300 horsepower ski for my two seat. I'm going to do a two seat. This just the, the race, the, the nasty race beat down one that we can just do, try this really stupid stuff in. Cause it'll be a quite a bit lighter and have more power. Is it a 10 footer or is it a 12? No, a 12, but it's about 300 pounds lighter. And okay. it's got a, we're a quarter inch aluminum with the UHMW on the other ones. This one's going to be 300 pounds lighter, but have a three, three eighths center plate. And, uh, so you can really just, but we're able to lighten it up in other places and then throw in an extra 50 horse at it too, on top of that. So just, uh, so it gets nasty. Gotcha. Now, where are you guys getting, uh, wrecked skis? I ended up finding a ski in Vegas for the 300 one that was just sitting, the people had bought, it was in perfect shape actually. And I, the hardest thing, the hardest part of the whole deal is finding them. That's yeah. it's. It's, there's no answer. I, I got no good answer for you. Wherever you can find one, Dave stole one. He absolutely home run it on, on his first one and found like the, you know, the one in a million that was just, they fell off a trailer with four hours on it and the people hadn't gotten insurance yet. So it never went to an insurance. It never went to auction and he just went over and bought it out of dude's garage, all trashed and stole it. Jesus. <laughs> well, that, that has been one of the, uh, one of my hiccups of why I haven't pulled the trigger on one. And he and I've talked about it like plenty. And then there's the other side of, uh, I need to convince a couple of friends to also get them down here. We have a ton of waterways down here in Houston. I mean, well, in Texas, a journal public, you know, the water is the state land it's, it's public. So you don't have to have special permits to run on You run, you know, you get your, your little boat license, your little boat tag on it and you can go anywhere. Now you can't get off on people's land as you're going through it, but yeah. You, as yeah, long as you're on the much, water, you're good. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, you, you know, we were on the Colorado and we've taken it to Havasu and we ran uh, up by Topak and Havasu. We went and ran the cattails and you, this is like a little single line. Like it's kind of like a little race course through the cattails. And then we shot through a bridge and there's about four inches on both sides of the boat. And you can pretty much do whatever you want. There's nobody there to mess with you or tell you what to do. And at least for now, we'll see how long that lasts. But they're a good time and you definitely want to have it's 
we need to have you got to have a couple with you that way if you get into something you can get get each other out they're just heavy enough yeah that's what i've seen i think the ones with the winches on the front we can pull we pulled dave put it on the beach once and we just picked it up him and i just put it pulled it off by ourselves it's all right they're pretty you can move them they're not bad and then with the the value of the u.s dollar versus the canadian dollar today they make it they're pretty reasonable to buy from the canadians who are building these things yeah, they are. Uh, we did the jet stream one this time, and then I think I'm going to do a different one. I'm doing it. We're working with another guy in Alaska on the next ones, the the lighter one. And so I think these are going to be an, another step above even. So looking forward to getting my hands on that one. We're waiting on them right now. Well, I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited. I've been watching, like I said, I've been watching y'all do it and I've been hesitant, you know, uh, you know, I'm re- not ready to dip the, the pinky toe in the water yet. Uh, but I've been, I have been shopping, trying to find salvage jet skis, man, they're just few and far between, especially, you know, I'm down on the Gulf coast where you can basically boat year round here. And I still haven't found, uh, there's gotta be a source. There's gotta be, them things get wrecked. Yeah. I mean, we thought, yeah, we, we, we're digging hard, but it's, it's not, they don't come easy. That's for sure. Then the, uh, we're, we're going to do a video with, you know, K, uh, Casey and some other sponsors are going to jump on and we're going to do a good video. And I'm, I don't know if you've probably seen Blake Wilkie's boat. I have. Yeah. The yeah. other guy. So, Wilkie, myself, and Dave are going to go and film some stuff here coming up. So hopefully you guys will get to see something cool from that here pretty soon. And see, there you go. There's the, I was asking what's next for the viral stuff, and it's uh, it's not necessarily <laughs> going to have you know r- rubber and wheels and tires and horsepower in that regard. It's going to be on the water. Well, we still got, we still got a trophy truck sitting there, and I got I got some parts sitting there. So you might see it fly again someday soon. Soon, someday soon. Well, Nick, thank you again for coming on, man. Did uh, we check all the boxes? I think we got more than all of them, but uh, it was fun. It was fun uh, kind of digging into some of the stuff we hadn't talked about in a long time, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Badass. It was a fun, fun trip down uh, memory lane. Plus as well, uh, just learned so many things about you. Like that I've known you, known you for a lot of years, raced with you, even pitted with you at uh, Parker one year. Yes, sir. Uh, when you're running, you're running Joe DeLucci's uh, trophy truck at that point. And then, uh, and then, yeah, just all the hammer stuff. But it was cool to, I just didn't know stuff about you. And, and you really, uh, I was fully entertained. I hope everyone that listens to this is entertained as well, man. You're a fun guy, man. Hopefully we didn't run down too far down the rabbit hole on some of that, but uh, yeah, dude, it's a uh, man. It's been a, it's been a roller coaster, but you know what? That's uh that's just what you just got to take what, what comes your way. Right. Yeah. But you gotta be doing something right. I'm talking to you. Right. <laughs> <I've been kidding laughs> that's, that's a low standard. <laughs> I finally made it. Homie. I made it. Well, Hey, uh, you guys should follow, follow this guy, follow this guy's, uh, at least on Instagram at a minimum. It's, uh, the N Nelson or then Nelson or the Nick Nelson. Yeah. Most people, most people miss that second end there. Yeah. It's, it's the snuck it in Nelson, uh, on Instagram, man, this guy's always got viral stuff on there. Uh, give him a follow. You'll like him. If you're in ultra four and in ultra four, obviously, if you're listening to this, you know who Nick is, and if you don't, well, now you do after the past two hours, man. Appreciate you all tuning in. Nick, thank you. I appreciate it. Can't wait to see uh, the next things you put out, okay? Thanks, brother. You have to come, uh, come party on the boats with us soon. I got to build one. All right, we're out. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make, as usual. I really have to thank my, uh, my three partners on this, Custom Splice, those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at uh, customsplice.com. Give them a call. Machining, oh my gosh, Brandon Machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If, if you need it made, they will do it. 
hit those guys up. They are a big supporter of the talent tank and I, uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least magnitude performance, Jason Yode and company there in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the talent tank and getting behind and supporting this, uh, this venture and this project and everything, give them, give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with Springs and then the parent company, mass motorsports engines, Man, they have uh, they have engines unlocked, hand built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.